with the scent of potpourri Film to commit to memory Crossing the felt ropes Watching from home on my TV Looking at all my eyes can see They tell me I view obsessively Hello and welcome to The Obsessive Viewer. We're a movie and TV podcast that covers a specific topic, be it genre, trope, movie, or show each episode. You can find more of our work at obsessiveviewer.com. And while every episode will always be free, if you'd like to support what we do here, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer for tons of bonus audio content, including TV and book reviews, uh and uh, immediate reaction movie reviews uh patreon potpourri episodes movie commentary tracks and early access to uh episode content i'm your host matt hurt and with me today is of course uh tiny and recurring co-host and creator of the moviestate.com ben sears how is it going tonight you guys going awesome wonderful Nice, nice. We just did a uh, Patreon exclusive recording for the $1 Patreon tier, um, the OVB roll stuff. Uh, A lot of fun stuff. We kind of talked about Jon Stewart and uh, basically did like a long ad for Apple TV+. Plus. This is not sponsored in any way, but we just basically celebrated the Apple TV Plus catalog of stuff, (laughs) except for luck. Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) Yeah, so that was a lot a of good fun. streaming service. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, so today, today on the show, we're going to be continuing our Ebert's Great Movies List review series. This is part fourteen. We're going to be covering The Red Shoes from 1948, The Godfather Part 2 from 1974, and Dark City from 1998. But first, as I believe Ben was alluding to, uh, the, some news broke today, and. Or like it was actually last night that that it broke that um, I'm I'm kind of just flying off the off the top of my head with this, but basically uh, the merger between Warner Brothers and Discovery has resulted in them canceling projects that were well into production, uh, most notably Batgirl, which was in post production, I think, and. Um, had like a 70 to 90 million dollar price tag and it was originally going to be on uh hbo max as an hbo max exclusive original movie and they scrapped it and it will not be anywhere (laughs) which is so weird and it seems to be kind of indicative of a wider swath of just over overhaul of hbo max there's a um we're recording this August 3rd, so we're probably a little bit um, outdated by the time you guys are listening to this, but uh, there's like going to be an earnings call with, with Warner Brothers, and it's expected that they're going to kind of talk about revamping some things. Um, it's really weird. A lot of people are talking about it. What do you guys make of this news and my just piss poor way of <laughs> condensing it into uh, audio? Well, don't change, don't shortchange the Scoob sequel too. That is being shelved as well. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that's what we're all heartbroken over. Oh yeah. That's what's that's what we're all gonna riot over. Yeah. Which it's funny you say that, but like, um, Paul Dini or Diney, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but he's 
most notably from uh, Batman the Animated Series, he had tweeted, um, he said, a great wizard once taught me two magic words that will get one through the darkest of disappointments. Shit. Next. Um, And then someone quote tweeted him and said, didn't realize or perhaps forgot that the now canceled Scoob spinoff was written by Paul Denny. Also hearing it was close to complete too. This is so absurd. And then Paul Denny actually replied to him and said, shit next indeed. Yes, I'm co-writer, but also why cancel a 95% finished holiday movie this close to fall when you're guaranteed kids watching it from right after Halloween until at least New Year's? Makes no business sense, especially as both kids and parents dug the work-in-progress screening. What is going on? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, sorry. I don't don't mean to to, uh, downplay this you know what what all these people have oh no no, no. Poured their hearts yeah. and souls into for who knows how long uh but uh it's it's just super like even in a vacuum this is a weird thing yeah like, i don't know if i've ever heard of a movie that is uh that's done shooting mm-hmm. that is a big like superhero franchise kind of movie yeah. That's just not going to come out. Yeah. Never being seen. Um, I mean, just take away all the other factors to it. You know, the fact that it's a uh, Latina Mm -hmm. superhero female Mm -hmm. uh, that's made by non-white directors. uh, Not great optics there. No. um, But just... um, everything else around it is just super weird and uh, doesn't forebode well for a lot of things. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. Tiny, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, we've talked before, at least I've talked before about how, you know, the conflict between art and business and Hollywood is, the film industry is is really a business that's kind of deals in art more than anything. It's it's Mm -hmm. a business first. And we see the, um, the repercussions of that all the time. Uh, it doesn't mean we don't get good art. It just means the dollar comes first, you know? Um, but this is the most egregious example of it that I can remember. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially if it had just happened to one movie, I think we could be like, Oh damn, that's crazy. Yeah. But it's happening to a lot of stuff and yeah. that's, it's just bananas. And, and it's, it seems, I mean, I feel like they should just drop it in theaters, drop the damn yeah. thing, drop the Batgirl in theaters. You've got Michael Keaton returning as Batman. Yeah. The Gen Xers and the Millennials would come out in droves just to see mm-hmm. that. And oh, yeah. Brendan Fraser is going to be in it, so right? He's, yeah, he's having his kind of recon- uh, uh, renaissance right now. Mm-hmm. You know that I think that would be that. I don't know. I guess I'm not a marketing person or whatever, but it's just it's just mind boggling to me. I can't make sense of it at all in any in any stretch. And like you said, yeah, Michael Ke- that's supposed to be Michael Keaton's like. Return and granted, from what I've heard, he makes like a very brief appearance, but it's supposed to be oh. like a big. I mean, that's like his the first time him as Batman since Batman Returns, and I I don't know it like it doesn't seem like it's just a DC thing because of the whole scoop thing and all the other stuff, but it just seems so weird. At the end of the day, it seems so incredibly weird that they have an almost completed movie that they have spent the money on the money has been spent to create this piece of this piece of art it cannot 
be more it could not be it, it can't break their bank in any in any capacity to have them complete it and put it on the on the streaming service like it does not make any sense and yeah yeah it's just it is yeah. so bizarre no i i'm not a finance guy i'm not mm. an economics guy i'm barely a math person <laughs> um but there's just I, I don't understand how this makes financial sense. Mm -hmm. Like, and not to mention the flat as of this recording, the flash movie is still going to be coming out despite all of the shit. All of that going around the, about that. That is, it, um, which cost even more. Mm -hmm. And from what we, what has come out about it since the news broke, it's like, the you said that the the budget is like ninety million dollars, or it cost mm -hmm. ninety million dollars to make, and they were saying that that was not big enough to put into theaters, but too big to drop on a streaming service, which just <laughs> that... does not make any sense. Like, no. I can, you can't see the the ninety million dollars on the screen. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. And that's. Yeah. That it's so weird to me because that's the reason why it was ninety million dollars is because they were doing it specifically to to premiere it on HBO Max. They said somewhere that it was being made specifically for a streaming platform. That's why, mm. relatively speaking, the budget is relatively small for a big tentpole thing. And then they in the next breath they said that we want like the established IP and we want the big like DC movies to be blockbuster tentpole <laughs> movies. And it's like what there's so much content for like why I, I don't know it's just so weird and like i've i i don't know how true this is but i feel like i've heard that early test screenings weren't the greatest mm. but yeah you know what else came out this year freaking twice was freaking morbius i know <laughs> yeah so i i don't understand how it couldn't oh. have how it could be so bad that they had to dump it when Morbius yeah. exists. There's no way that they wouldn't get at and least... plenty of other big studio IP garbage. Like yeah, the newest Jurassic World movie, yes. which I haven't seen yet. But oh, you still haven't seen plenty. Yeah, no. it's terrible. <laughs> um, well, yeah. I actually kind of I think I get the math of it, the financials oh, of okay. it, because they were they were saying how. It was going to take. They they thought that the uh, marketing campaign could be as much as fifty million for it. Oh wow! Right. Um, and then the reason why it's beneficial to tank it is they can use it. They can write it off on their taxes. Oh. Um, and so I'm sure that's a huge Jeez. credit. But it also means you you're not allowed to make a penny off of it. Mm -hmm. um, you can't release it in any way, shape, or form. Um, so I kind of huh. get that, but it's like. It's just it a also, shitty, shitty thing to do to your artists and your yeah. fans. Yeah. 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 Like if, if I'm a filmmaker right now and uh, Warner Brothers comes calling and it's not for like a, even maybe even if it is for a, you know, superhero movie or a franchise mm -hmm. movie, I'm probably not going to pick up the phone. Right. Like they, right. they already made people mad last year with the day and date release oh, thing. Yeah. But uh with this and then i mean like we said there were recording this before this earnings call or whatever and mm -hmm. even more stuff is rumored to be uh given the axe on hbo max yeah but uh 
I I wouldn't want to be working with Warner Brothers or whatever they're going by now. Yeah. Warner Brothers Discovery, yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's also a symptom of um uh over conglomeration, you know, I mm-hmm. feel like these companies keep merging and it's really affecting content. It's really affecting the art more than ever. Um these businesses are getting too big, you know, uh I, I don't know. Some people might argue that we're feeling the effects with, you know, Disney and mm-hmm. Disney, ESPN, Marvel, Hulu, however many damn companies are all under the yeah. Disney umbrella Fox. now. Fox, yeah, it's cra- yeah. it's crazy. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, if it works, I don't have a problem with it, but I think yeah. we're kind of starting to see the cracks now. I'm, I'm not a fan mm-hmm. of over conglomeration. It hurts, yeah. uh, you know, it hurts, um, diversity of, mm-hmm. of art and it, it hurts, um, fan, you know, fa- what, what fans want, you know, it's, it's about, it becomes more and more and more about the dollar. And yeah. that's an unfortunate aspect of, of that business. And the art of movie making is the dollars are so important. Um, yeah. and I think, I, again, I think this is a symptom of that. It was a, that mer- the merge them buying discovery or however the hell that worked, mm-hmm. that was just, you know, it was, again, it was all business and they didn't give a shit how it affected the art. And yeah. that's, that's what we're seeing. You know, it sucks. Yep. Yeah. All I know is that if they take the studio Ghibli stuff oh, off yeah. of HBO max, I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I don't blame you. And, and that's the thing that that's another aspect to it is of course we're, we're talking in a vacuum and obviously we're, we have no affiliation with the industry or anything, but by all accounts, like it's if this if they go the route that is theorized or rumored to be that they are going to purge HBO Max and fold it into Disney or Discovery Plus and have something else entirely or put a focus on reality television or whatever the hell all the rumors are, it's so bizarre to me because HBO Max is, by all accounts, or by my perspective at least, a massive success. It is one of the best streaming services around, and it's yes, it's insane. At least in terms of content, yeah, quality absolutely. Content. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's just it's weird. It's so weird and uh, very discouraging. I agree. Yeah. Just when I had started watching Peacemaker, they better not. Take it off. Yeah, I saw that um, people were tweeting at James Gunn, and he said, "Yeah, Peacemaker is a safe. Peacemaker safe. Calm down." <laughs> okay. Good. Yeah. Because so. I still haven't finished it. Nice. I uh, I know I haven't started. I haven't watched Peacemaker. I di- I just didn't really care about the Suicide Squad. Um. Yeah. Um. So. I, I wonder if this is going to lead to some kind of systemic shift in the, mm. in the filmmaking world where um, these companies might break up a little bit um, or you could get a group of artists together that basically just create a new distribution company. <laughs> like, like hey. screw you, Warner brothers, universal, whoever, screw you. We, we all have our own production companies. We're going to get together and make our own distribution company and we're going to out yeah. underbid and fuck over all of you. And we're going to drive you out of town. And, you know, I, I, that's, I have no uh, clue if that's even feasible, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I wonder if there's going to be some major business shifts as a result of this. A group of United, United artists, if you will. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's basically how it came to be. Is that's like right. Chaplin and Keaton and all those guys. They didn't want to work with like Paramount and MGM and all of them, and so they kind of formed their own mm-hmm. thing. And yeah, I did not know that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I did also see, and this is tangentially related, and then we can get into the Ebert stuff, but um, I did see that apparently Neon, um, who, like, they they distribute some just quality stuff each year. It's like, it's, it's insane, but they were talking, I, I think that there was something about how they're looking over their financial situation because they're looking, like, they might need to be bought out at some point, and that's... Very uh, uh, troubling to hear. Mm. Well, yeah, and they also want to start producing TV. Oh, I think that might interesting. Be part of it. Okay, hmm. you know, I we'll see what happens with that. <laughs> like, I'm, I, 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 like they're really great. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, anything more on this, or should we get into our Ebert reviews? I'm good. Let's do it. All right, awesome. And I know that you guys had said that the audio was kind of weird with the music, but it's it's fine in the in the mix, so it should be good. But uh, yeah, hopefully it's not too bad when I play the stinger. But basically, we're going to go into our uh, Ebert's Great Movies list reviews uh, for this episode. Um, the Ebert's Great Movies list is a list of over 300 movies uh, that Roger Ebert wrote ep- essays for, calling them great. And we've got a stinger that we're going to play, and I'm going to play that right now. No name is more synonymous with film criticism than Roger Ebert's. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world. Millions of despairing men, women, and children. People say, do film critics have too much power? For those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. We can help a movie. We can help a movie by sharing our enthusiasm. We can't necessarily hurt a movie that is destined to be a big hit anyway. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. And then Roger Ebert gets up. I uh, find very offensive and condescending about your statement. There's nobody would say to a bunch of white filmmakers, how could you do this to your people? Let us all unite! All right, and of course the concept for this review series is that we each select a single movie from Roger Ebert's Great Movies list and review and discuss them in a special series of podcast episodes. Like I said, this is our 14th installment of this series, and uh, one of the quotes attributed to Roger Ebert about this essay series that he did is, quote, One of the gifts a movie lover can give another is the title of a wonderful film they have not yet discovered. Here are more than 300 reconsiderations and appreciations of movies from the distant past to the recent past all of movies that I consider worthy of being called great. And yes, yeah, so this is installment number 14, and we've got three uh, movies that we're going to talk about, <laughs> as we usually do. Uh, we, As we always do, we go in chronological order uh, from release date. We're going to be talking about The Red Shoes from 1948, The Godfather Part Two from 1974, and Dark City from 1998. And uh, before we get into it and everything, I think, do we have any stats or anything? Did you guys have anything? I know Tiny had, like, um, an average thing that he figured out. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can go ahead and lead with that. Um, okay. So I took the uh, – I wanted to find the uh, the average year of release for the movies that we've been watching uh, mm-hmm. on our list so far because um, 
Roger Ebert's list goes back to the 1920s. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of movies from every decade. So, uh, oh, I we, think there, there might be some from the teens too. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. I mean, it's crazy. Um, and so I was curious, you know, we've all picked some older ones. So I was curious mm-hmm. what the average year of release was. Uh, and it's a little, uh, maybe a little serendipitous that it's 1969 summer of love. Oh, nice. Yeah, after 35 movies, 1969. That's awesome. And yeah, we've yeah. covered 39. 30, did you say 39 or 35? I have 35. 35 so with these okay. three, we'll be at 38. I'm, 38. I'm, hopefully I'm not missing one. I'll feel like an idiot. No, no, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 crazy. Because like this kind, of, this kind of project kind of came up as, I think Ben and I were talking about it uh, like right before the pandemic hit. And then that delayed it a little bit and then we finally got kind of got the ball rolling and it's been really fun it's a really good way to kind of just uh discover some some underrated gems like the godfather <laughs> part 2 and uh <laughs> and uh one of the other very high profile movies that the we The Godfather reviewed. Part 1 The Godfather Part 1 <laughs> <laughs> So uh yeah. well if we're if we've done either 35 or 38 that means that we're uh, at least like ten percent done with the series by now. <laughs> yep, we've yep. been doing it for about two years now. Oh so. yeah, so right, this chugging is, right along. Yeah, oh yeah, slow and steady. Um, <laughs> we'll get there. Um, but yeah, it's funny because at the at the start of it, I was like, oh, it could be really cool, and then like when we're done with this, we can do like another like movie list or something. And I'm like, now I'm like three hundred like minimum we'll have a hundred installments <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah so anyway uh it's a lot of fun though um totally but yeah anything else or should we get into the first review of the night I, uh, well i mean if you uh, if listeners are so inclined i have a uh, letterbox list i forget yes. if i had said this on air last time or not but um i put together a list and i i went back and re-listened to uh, our series and uh, put together a list of all of our official picks for what yes. we would each put on our end, our uh, great movies list and put mm-hmm. it into one. So you can find that on my letterbox. I don't know if you guys have cloned that already or not, or if you're, if you want to, but I haven't, but I'll put a link in the show notes to the list and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Check it out. Cool. Oh yeah. Nice. Um, awesome. So yeah, we are going to be talking about three movies tonight. As we usually do, we're going to do a non-spoiler and spoiler review. Uh, the spoiler section will be separated by a clip from the trailer for the respective movie. If you want to kind of navigate that, I have timestamps in the show notes of the episode, which can also be found, which the show notes can be found in your podcast app of choice, whatever you're using. Um, or if you want to go to the website, it's at obsessiveviewer.com slash ov378. So, without further ado, the first movie that we're going to be discussing tonight is 1948's The Red Shoes, which was a pick from Ben. Um, Ben, do you want to kind of introduce us to it and tell us why you picked it? And uh, we can kind of dive in from there. All right. So, uh, The Red Shoes, 1948, directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, Pressburger, uh, a.k.a. The Archers. Uh, plot description, a young ballet dancer is torn between the man she loves and her pursuit to become a prima ballerina. Uh, and I had mostly just picked this because, uh, I had heard a lot about it and never seen it. Um, 
I don't remember if I had heard anything specific about it, but also because uh, I bought the Criterion 4K uh, Blu-ray. And so I just basically picked this as an excuse to watch it. So Nice. Very nice. And uh, did you know anything about it going in? Because I know that Tiny had watched it. And he texted us about it, and I, like I, I literally that was the first inclination of anything I had about. Like I had no knowledge of the movie, so uh, yeah. yeah no. What did you know going in? No, I I didn't know anything about it either. Like I I think nice. I remember I texted you guys. Like uh, I didn't know if it was in English. I didn't mm-hmm. know if it was a musical. I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't know any of the actors. I had never seen any of the Archers movies before, so. Uh, yeah, just basically went into this blind. I think I remember seeing a letterbox review or two that mentions the dance sequence, which we'll talk about. Um, but other than that, no, I didn't know anything about it. Wow. Okay. And, uh, yeah, we can kind of from there go around and uh, like tiny, what did you think of the red shoes? Uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I was a little Mm -hmm. surprised. Uh, like Ben, I knew basically nothing about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I was really um, surprised at how well it, hold, it held up. I feel like the movie has a lot of uh, subtext to it mm-hmm. um, or a lot of at least underlying motivations that aren't, you know, on the surface. Um, and I thought that was maybe maybe arguably a little bit ahead of its time uh, in that regard. Um, I, I remember years ago when I was um, sort of coming of age as a, a film uh, fan, I was obsessed with Martin Scorsese and, mm. uh, was getting my hands on all his movies and watching all his movies and IMDb was becoming a thing. And oh, so I yeah. would just go on IMDb and just read random trivia about, I wasn't even watching something. I would just pick a random movie or a random <laughs> filmmaker. Nice. And I remember, uh, looking at Martin Scorsese's IMDb and, uh, I was like, it's like his favorite movie and he Mm -hmm. thinks it's amazing. And I was just like, the fuck is the red shoes? I've never even heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember that from 20 years ago, you know, um, reading about the red shoes on Martin Scorsese's IMDb. So here we are, however many years later, um, Mm -hmm. because Ben bought a new Blu-ray, I got to watch it. (laughs) Uh, um, But yeah, I, I think, um, you know, the color palette of the movie is really beautiful. Um, I feel like the the sets and everything, um, I, I didn't, I can't remember if it was in the trivia or not, but I was curious if they actually just uh, picked some actual opera houses to shoot these uh, scenes in or if they were sets or, or what, because it was just all really beautiful. Um, a lot of great locations and all that stuff um, and some really good performances. Yeah, I, I was pleasantly yeah. surprised by the movie. Very nice. Um, yeah, uh, uh, sorry, Matt, you can talk about it real quick. Uh, but first, oh, no. um, uh, there's a commentary track on the uh, Blu-ray and Martin Scorsese pops in a couple times. Oh, um, nice. And Matt, you maybe you'll be able to tell me if it's on the uh, Criterion channel or not, because I think you've mentioned before they have commentary tracks on there. Um, they um, do, yeah. I uh, have have uh, I unsubscribed from Criterion Channel to oh. save <laughs> to save a little bit of money. I'm going to go back to it at some point. Yeah. But yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, uh, he he talks uh, in it a little bit. I didn't watch the entire. Uh, commentary, but he mm-hmm. mentions that the 
uh, red shoes ballet sequence uh, helped him uh, when he was working on uh, Raging Bull and the boxing sequences. So I just found that really interesting. But yeah, he he loves this movie. Huh. Mm -hmm. That's really awesome. Um, Yeah. Also, uh, one thing that I learned later is uh, Thelma Schoonmaker, his regular editor, was Mm. married to Michael Powell. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Um, I, so, (laughs) uh, I, I don't think I really, I I didn't really connect with the movie all that, what, all that much. Um, I respect it for the, um, technical achievement like that, that ballet sequence is just stunning. Like it is, it is hypnotizing. It is incredible. It holds up incredibly well. And it's, something that it's one of those things where it's like, oh, this was made in 1948 and they made this just really just elegant and beautiful kind of psychedelic, like incredibly lengthy just sequence. And it's, it is, it is astonishing, but everything else around it, I just kind of didn't really connect with it. I didn't really feel for it all that much. I kind of felt like the um, the relationship that's uh, that's uh, referenced in the premise felt a little bit. It it was it was very slow to develop, and some of the conflict that arose from it just felt like it didn't have time to really play out in in a significant way, uh, or time to build toward the way that it uh, that it that it kind of works out in significant ways. Um, and so I just didn't really connect with it, but I totally respect the artistry of it. Um, yeah. Ben, how did you feel about the movie kind of overall? And um, do you regret buying the Blu-ray or do you love it? <laughs> uh, no, I love it. I would recommend anyone to buy this, buy the Blu-ray, especially nice. in 4K if you're able to, because it looks incredible. Like I I tried, uh, I rewatched parts of it on HBO max on my phone, uh, earlier today. And it just, it looks so much better in 4k. It's incredible. Mm. Uh, wow. well worth the buy, uh, if you are able to, um, mm. but yeah, I, I really liked the movie overall. It was really incredible. Um, I, uh, I think it's a really interesting, I'm always kind of drawn to movies that are kind of about the creative process. Mm -hmm. And so this was really just right up my alley. Um, And just the way that the archers depict these characters who are so driven to do these things that they love is, uh, I just really loved the way that they depicted that. Yeah. Plus awesome. Plus, yeah, the uh, we'll we'll come back to it, but the the ballet sequence in the middle of the movie is just one of the greatest sequences I've maybe ever seen. Yeah, and even the like, even the opening sequence with the kind of flood of students and uh, <laughs> and audience members that are just flying into the into the theater and getting to the the seats, like the choreography of that, the energy of it is undeniable like it is it is incredibly um energetic and it really brings you into it in a, in a pretty unique way um i just i don't i i'll it's a movie that i'll probably have to revisit at some point because i feel like maybe i didn't give it that fair a shake but i definitely respect it but yeah 
yeah, as the uh, as the Gen Zers would say, it was serving me Birdman vibes. Oh, <laughs> the Michael Keaton movie, just because like Ben was saying about about the creative process, it wasn't quite mm. as in depth or candid as Birdman, but. I kind of got some notions uh, uh, from that movie mm-hmm. uh, watching, watching the red shoes. Um, yeah. And yeah, I'm, I'm the only one who hasn't mentioned the, uh, the ballet sequence mm-hmm. yet, but uh, that was the highlight without question. I, I can't yeah. imagine it in 4k with all the color, the color palette and the depth of it and everything. Um, oh, yeah. I think the, the trivia said that took them six weeks to film. Oh wow. I mean, that's I just fun unbelievable uh, i might be off on the time but it was That's it was a amazing. while it was yeah it was it took him a long time to film it um mm-hmm. but uh yeah and the filmmaking techniques you know for 1948 are pretty impressive and yeah like i said it it holds up um i'm curious have either of you guys ever been to a ballet like in in-person ballet i, I have i oh, uh my I parents dragged me and my sisters to the uh, nutcracker when i was uh i don't know too old and too cool to <laughs> go and see it um mm-hmm. sorry uh yes you're tiny you're correct six weeks to shoot and employed over 120 paintings oh wow oh, bananas yeah um well ben's a snobby son of a bitch I did the <laughs> yeah. um no but i i was sitting there wondering while i was watching it i was like do I, do I do I like ballet? Like, is this <laughs> is that what's happening? Because I'm so into this right now. Yeah. Um, I I could not have been more surprised by that. Mm. Um, it was yeah, I was really blown away by it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, I maybe uh, dance people would <laughs> be able to call me out on this, but I feel like ballet is like one of the most difficult dance techniques or styles to master like there's Mm -hmm. so much control that you have to have over your body and so much precision that goes into it it's just insane and this just totally highlighted that oh absolutely yeah the the wear and tear and the damage that it does to your body too Mm -hmm. excuse me it's it's almost like uh like gymnastics like if you look at um a lot a lot of gymnasts they're they're done by the time they're 20, 22 years old, mm-hmm. they don't, they're done. And it's, I, I assume it's probably the same for ballet dancers because it's just havoc on your body. Yeah. And it's kind of a, I mean, this is a, it's a pretty uh, ubiquitous kind of plot thread or, or uh, themes to explore, but, and we'll talk about it in, in spoilers for sure. But um, I, I do appreciate the way that it kind of delves into that kind of happiness or, uh, having happiness and or um, acclaim or fame or being the best at something. I mean, it's stuff that I can clearly see influences, uh, like how this movie may have influenced like uh, Black Swan or uh, Whiplash or even La La Land. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I can see its fingerprints all over those, uh, all over those movies. And for, for, it lasting this long and having that kind of influence is, is pretty impressive. Even if I didn't really connect with, with it on that level, I could recognize that um, it explored those themes in, in solid ways, solid ways um, with an interesting ending. Yeah. yeah. Um, earlier, Matt, you mentioned um, kind of the central relationship in the movie, the romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. Um I, I agree with you. I think it was, uh, it did not feel organic. Mm-hmm. It felt, uh, it felt pretty forced. I think, um, I think it, 
ultimately worked, but it sort of just came out of nowhere and it didn't, it didn't feel, um, it didn't feel very like, like it didn't have a good meat cute or any kind of, you know, um, there wasn't a ton of meat there by the end. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, you know, I was on board, but yeah, that could have been done better for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I had initially rated this five stars and then, uh, when it when I got to thinking of it, I dropped it down to four and a half just because like yes, the the relationship between um Vicky and um Craster, uh yes, just very much comes out of nowhere uh in the second half. Like yeah. that's that's actually kind of part of why I rewatched it because I was I almost felt like I missed something. Mm-hmm. And like I watched the first half of it and like Vicky and Craster have maybe like two scenes, two and a half scenes together. And one of them, he's like screaming at her and I'm like, wait. (laughs) And then next thing you know, they're like in love and Mm -hmm. on this carriage ride together, telling them how much they love each other. And I'm like, wait, did I miss something? Right. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But no, it just develops off screen, but it wasn't, you know, a a total deal breaker, Mm -hmm. uh, believe it or not. But uh, I agree. Maybe uh, if there was ever a remake, they would probably explore that relationship a little bit more. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I agree. Um, did you guys uh, kind of, and maybe this is obvious and I'm just dumb or something, but um, did you guys kind of get the sense that Lermontov was kind of like in love with Vicky Page a little bit? I think that is a read of it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And, and I think that is what I initially thought, uh, why he like fired her. But then I remembered earlier when he fired the, the other two, uh, players who got married and it's just, again, it's the, it's the, these three central characters all have this drive to do what they do. And his drive is to be the best ballet company. And in his view, he can't have any of his people being uh, distracted, for lack of yeah. a better word, by a relationship with each other. He was yeah. he was in love with her talent. And right. he wanted to kind of take possession of that uh, at the expense of her happiness. That was my kind of read of it. Yeah, I, I was kind of reading it two ways. I was like, well, I think he kind of loves her. Although he's kind of in love with her a little bit, and he's sort of pissed that she's not reciprocating that, and she's in love with Craster. But um, I thought another kind of read on it or interpretation is that she was basically becoming his muse. Mm-hmm. Um, like you were saying, Matt, he's in love with her talent. Yeah. Um, but w- th- there's a there's a element of love to a, a person finding a muse. So yeah. um, that's probably a better, uh, uh, a better description for it or a better moniker for it is that she was his becoming his muse. Um, but yeah. And then that I was kind of, I don't, I don't know about blown away, but kind of shocked mm-hmm. by the the ending. I mean, I thought that was again, kind of, um, uh, I don't know about ahead of its time, but pretty, risky or risque for a movie in the 1940s to have something so brazen and shocking happen at the end. What'd you guys think of that? 
Uh, we can talk in more in detail in spoilers, but I was pretty... I was, oh, yeah, sorry. No, no, you're good. You're good. Uh, I do want to say, though, that, um, yes, uh, there is a there is a kind of attraction when someone's amused and everything. Just ask Julia Fox and Uncut Jams. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. But, uh but yeah the ending uh pretty pretty interesting um yeah i i i i was into it yeah ben how about you yeah and uh i think uh ebert theorizes in his essay that uh perhaps uh lermontov might be attracted to or in love with uh uh craster as well um i mean there's there's no uh obvious evidence of it but uh it's it's a possible reading sure hmm that's interesting yeah. i hadn't, I hadn't yeah. thought of that i uh t- kind of uh sort of to go along with it but the uh costumes in this i loved especially uh there's a scene early on in where uh craster goes to meet Lermontov and he's like eating breakfast and he's wearing this weird like knee length jacket or coat or something i don't know i don't know how to describe it but it just it looked pretty pretty interesting yeah yeah i think i I I can't i can't picture it but yeah that's there was some good costume work in the movie for sure oh yeah absolutely um okay do you guys want to go into spoilers yes would would spoiler uh would the uh dance sequence be considered a spoiler no I don't think so. We can talk about the I dance think, sequence. I feel like we we need to talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's like I said, it's one of the greatest sequences I've ever seen. I mean, it just it goes on for so long, and yeah. with something that long, you kind of think like maybe eventually they'll they'll run out of steam. But it just gets mm-hmm. more and more creative and more visually interesting and dynamic as you go. Yeah, like the first time that I watched it, I initially started to question like how is this working practically Mm -hmm. like what is what is the audience that is sitting in this theater watching and then i just realized that it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. it's it's just all this big spectacle and it's incredible that that is such an interesting read of it too like that that kind of reaction uh, to think about what the in in universe or in movie audience is experiencing, because and like like you like you said, you get to the point where it's like it doesn't matter because it's just it's part of the artistry of it and everything, and just like I, I think that that level of immersion and empathy to an extent, but most of all, just immersion in a film is increasingly increasingly rare. And to kind of experience that, because it's like a 15 minute sequence and it is like, like, like we said, it's, it's mesmerizing. It is absolutely entrancing. Um, So that's just, that's really interesting. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious to see another version of the movie that doesn't even have the sequence in it Mm -hmm. um, because that's really some of the only ballet that's in the movie. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it's, it serves to, kind of do exactly what Matt was saying. It's to like enchant us and, and yeah. charm us and, and, and let us know that, Hey, this is like the greatest ballet of all time. Mm-hmm. And that's why this is all blow the, you know, that leads to the future conflict in the movie. Um, but you know, we don't necessarily as the audience need to see it and yeah. need to see what happens. Like we could just convey it all in, in other forms, but they chose to take six weeks and pour tons of money and time and effort yeah. into 
filming that incredible sequence, um, which I'm thankful they did because mm-hmm. I'm probably never going to forget it. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's just it's pretty fascinating that they pulled it off. Yeah, one 15 minute sequence taking as long as a, a whole movie can can take to shoot. That is right. That is uh, that is and, that is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like just about any other movie or movie about a, a theater production or a ballet or a dance or whatever would save that until the end. Yeah. And I, I thought yeah. that that's, that was what was going to happen here, but it was mm-hmm. almost in the exact middle of the movie. And oh, I was yeah. like, wait, there's still an hour left of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that's a really good point too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I, I yeah, anytime. And that's one of the reasons why I kind of feel like I need to give it an, another 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 go because I've I've said before that live theater and live productions like that, the mechanics of that, the stress of that, the just the precision of it escapes my escapes me. Like I don't understand how how people can function and work together like as, as a unit in that in that capacity to pull off a a performance like live on stage and there are certain movies that handle that and do that kind of thing incredibly well and basically any theater production you go to is is a bunch of a bunch of that and it's it's just really mind blowing to me but. I think of like the movie uh, Noises Off um, from like the 80s, like that has a similar kind of thing where it's just a an incredible like fast paced, um, just just incredibly fast paced, very choreographed um, kind of uh, slapstick kind of thing. And I I admire that level of detail and organization in in the film medium. And so that's why I'm kind of just like I'm kind of just a little miffed with myself that my overall kind of reaction to the red shoes is eh, it's fine. It's cool. <laughs> so, I don't know. I have some stuff I got to work out, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, but yeah. <laughs> uh anything more on the ballet sequence or should we go into spoilers? good all right cool. no we're good just right. again watch it in 4k if you can yeah oh yeah i say that like i did no i watched it on hbo max but uh but yeah it it is definitely a visually stunning movie but we're gonna go into spoilers for the red shoes uh so if you don't want to be spoiled check the show notes for timestamps to skip ahead to our godfather part two uh, review or Dark City, you know, whichever you want to listen to. But I'm going to play a clip from the trailer before we go into spoilers for The Red Shoes. The Red Shoes. Daring the original musical that captures all the glamour of the south of France in exquisite technicolor. Blending compelling beauty and high drama with a love story of sheer enchantment. Assembling a cast of international stars to endow an enthralling film with their rich vitality. And making the outstanding debut of this or any other year, a lovely red-headed girl graced with all the talents, Moira Shearer. All right, and spoilers on for the Red Shoes. Um, 
it ends in in a very kind of a Shakespearean way, uh, most notably, obviously, Romeo and Juliet, very tragic. Uh, how did you guys feel about the ending of The Red Shoes, and uh, how did it color your overall impression of the movie um, as a whole? I thought it was really well done and, and really incredible. I wasn't really expecting that. Um, I thought it was going to be kind of a... Uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a bit standard, I guess, where it was like, oh, she, she chose love, you know, one of those kind of deals. Yeah. Um, but I think they sold her, um, you know, they, they sold her inner conflicts really well. Uh, uh, Moira Shearer did a great job with that. She was truly conflicted. I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the culmination of that, when she basically attempts suicide, I mean, uh, that yeah. was, I was shocked, you know, and, and I feel like, um, that's a uh, a theme that isn't tapped a lot, especially maybe in 1940s cinema, which I'm not an expert, so that's maybe a goofy statement coming from me. But, um, you know, that theme exists, obviously. The Phantom of the Opera, you know, the sacrificing for your art is a huge theme of mm-hmm. that, you know, of that story and that, that play. Um, but just to see it, you know, displayed so wantonly in this movie i was like holy crap i did not see that coming that was really just shocking and amazing and i really loved it as a creative choice hmm. yeah ben how about you yeah i uh i also didn't see it coming i probably should have though because like they they clearly uh lay out like how the story is going to go early on. Like when Lermontov is explaining the red shoes ballet and how like the, the story of it. And I I always love secretly when movies kind of do that, they almost explicitly lay out like what is going to happen in the end of the movie Mm -hmm. uh, without you really realizing it. So um, I, I loved how it uh, ended up. Yeah. Um, I kind of like what you were saying, tiny, I feel like a lot of movies of this era, um, would have made, uh, the Moira Shearer character just care more about love than anything else. Uh, and her falling in love and finding a man is the ultimate, uh, prize for her, you know, um, there are so many bad movies of this era that, that that is the main goal of the female protagonist. And I'm glad that this wasn't uh, the case with this movie. Um, Yeah. yeah, You, you definitely, like you said, tiny, you definitely get the conflict with her. Yeah. I definitely agree with that too. It It is definitely a, an unconventional ending for this era of film and everything. And I, and I definitely see, like I kind of alluded to in non-spoilers, I see the, influence that it had on like several movies but most notably i kind of um i kind of feel like it it definitely inspired um la la land quite a bit with that ending not that it's as like tragic and everything but it is very much a kind of downer ending in in the grand scheme of things and i i just really here's one of the big big hiccups i have with the movie or one of the big hang-ups i have with it is that I feel like I'm going to butcher his name. The, the, um, the director guy, uh, Lermontov, Lermontov, his kind of 
controlling nature and his like that scene on the train one of the scenes on the train um i wanted more of that dynamic and maybe i missed it maybe i missed that kind of that kind of admiration for for her gifts and everything and the more outspoken like yeah you you don't you shouldn't do this you should do this no one will ever dance the red shoes like you do you need to recognize that as a gift and everything and and go for it and all that like it, it's this weird controlling aspect or this re- really weird controlling sort of behavior but you kind of understand his his point of view even if it's abhorrent in in a certain respect and uh i don't know i just really i just really uh um enjoyed that yeah he doesn't come across as a total monster mm-hmm. um which definitely helps um i again i feel like a lot of other movies would just make him a, just a total asshole yeah uh and just totally controlling and you'd never really get on his side so um uh, yeah yeah like vincent cassell's character from black swan oh yeah the, Right. LA director, he's pretty fairly despicable in that movie. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, it's been a long time since I've seen that. Yeah, me too. Me too. Hmm. So, yeah, um, yeah. Anything else in spoilers? That's kind of brief, but I mean, anything else we've got to say in spoilers? Um, I know that there was a different, there was a separate like sequence. I think where um, it was uh, it was to Swan Lake. I think. And I just I love any time that that piece of music is in is in a movie, so I enjoyed that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anything else on spoilers for the red shoes? No, I think I'm good. No. No. All right. Cool. Well, as we normally do, uh, we probably should have done this before going to spoilers, but whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, we're gonna go around the horn, give our thumbs up, thumbs down rating and uh decide whether or not it would be on our own personal great movies list and um ben since this was your pick i'm gonna save you for last and i'm gonna get us kicked off and then we'll go tiny and then you um so i would say that be specifically because of the kind of the once the once the relationship is in full swing and once the that plus the 15 minute ballet sequence, the artistry of that, the technique, technique techniques of that, um, because of those, I would give it a thumbs up. Um, unfortunately, I would not put it in my great movies list personally. And I think that I would replace it with um, honestly, I would it could be kind of. I don't know, maybe sacrilegious. I'm not sure, but La La Land. I've talked about it a lot, so I I I kind of just love the chemistry of that movie. So um, I would replace it with La La Land, and uh, the cinephiles listening will, <laughs> you know, come at me with pitchforks. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, that's so, cool. Yeah, uh, Tiny. How about you? Um. I gave it four stars out of five, uh, which again, I was a little surprised that I, that I liked it that much. Um, I would put it on the great movies list. Um, I think there are maybe, there might be a better movie out there uh, Mm -hmm. that's sort of in these themes that I just haven't seen, but this one's great. I I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, 
Yeah, Ben, how about you? Uh, yeah, like I said, I gave it uh, five stars initially, four and a half stars after I thought about it a little bit more. Maybe I, I could bump it back up to five at some point. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, yeah, absolutely on my great movies list. Um, can I ask, we didn't really talk about this, but I'm assuming this is the first movie of the Archers that you guys have seen. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know if I'm at least off the top of my head, familiar with what, like, their other work or anything. So, yeah. Yeah, as far as I know, I, I don't think I've seen any, anything from them. They have, I think, at least two movies on the Ebert list. They oh, have wow. Life, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp and Peeping Tom, which, oh. again, I know nothing about either one of them. So, hmm. uh, But I, I'm anxious to watch more of their stuff, for sure. I know yeah. uh, they had another... Uh, Criterion movie that just came out or got announced recently, The Tales of Hoffman, um, which, again, I know nothing about. So maybe I'll buy it. Maybe I I won't. We'll see. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, I'm curious to see uh, what they've got. So, yeah. Hmm. Um, Also, I think I figured out what the audio problem was that I was having. So... I think we're good. Um, But yeah, so I think that that's it for our review of The Red Shoes. It's available on HBO Max and on Criterion uh, and on 4K and everything. So check that out. Um, Now we're going to go into our second review of the evening, which is my pick, which was 1974's The Godfather Part 2, which, like I said, came out in 1974. Um, The premise is the early life and career of Vito Corleone in 1920s New York City is portrayed, while his son Michael expands and tightens his grip on the family crime syndicate. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, written by Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo, who wrote the original novel, uh, cast in Includes Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton, John Cazale, uh, and Talia Shire. It was released December 18th, 1974. And the reason that I picked it was because I picked The Godfather last time. And uh, I had not seen The Godfather Part Two in many years. And rewatching The Godfather, getting to see it in the theater earlier this year... Uh, for the 50th anniversary just really made me want to kind of delve more into the saga of it and everything. And yeah, so uh, that's kind of my history with The Godfather Part Two and my reason for picking it. Um, what is your guys' relationship with The Godfather Part Two, And how did you come to it this time around? Um, ben, do you want to get us kicked off? Uh, so this was actually the only, only the second time that I've ever seen part two. Um, nice. I, and I had only seen part two, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and I like it. Um, I don't think it, uh, I'm sorry to, uh, get ahead of it, but I don't think that this is better than part one Mm -hmm. uh i know that there's a subset of people out there who believe that but i am not one of them um but i still think it's great i think it's uh really interesting really fascinating continuation of these characters Mm -hmm. um and a, a lot of the things that work so well in part one are working just as well maybe better in some regards in this version so yeah Nice. Tiny, how about you? I know that you've seen this 
more, probably the most times out of all of us, I would think. Am I right in that? Oh, I, I don't know. Oh, um, never mind then. <laughs> this, this is maybe the third time I've seen it. Oh, never mind then. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine it's more than that. Um, yeah, but uh, I, I also think it's great. Um, it's it's really good, and I, I'm actually aligned with Ben. I, uh, I don't mm-hmm. think it's better than the original. And um, actually, I would go further to say that I don't think it even is on par with the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, still a still a damn good movie, but the, the original movie, I, the original Godfather is just practically perfect. I mean, yeah. it's, I can't find anywhere to deduct points from that movie if, if you will. Um, but there's, there's stuff that I can criticize about part two, mm-hmm. um, at least compared to the first one. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's a great movie. I was so, um, it was so interesting to see, um, Michael Corleone, uh, fully, uh, embedded as the Don now mm-hmm. and, and, and fully bought into the life of a criminal of, of, of a, a crime boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause one of the most interesting, interesting things about the first Godfather is his evolution, his character mm-hmm. evolution. Cause he's very quiet and regarded yeah. and um, uh, almost innocent in the first movie. Mm-hmm. And he evolves into a gangster. Um, but we don't get a, we don't get a huge glimpse of him in that in the first one. Um, but in the second one, he's, he's full bore, you know, he is, he is full on the Don now. Um, and that's interesting to watch, to see him, you know, uh, further his, uh, development or just, you know, uh, fully give in to that, I guess. Um, so that's one of the most interesting things about the movie for me. Um, I think the, I think it gets pretty slow, like the first movie, um, pacing wise isn't a fast paced movie, but it's so wildly entertaining and fascinating the entire time. Every scene, every frame is fascinating, but I feel like there's more than a few parts of part two where it gets a little, uh, I'm just not, I wasn't too interested in it and it was just a little, um, uh, a little boring and kind of, kind of dragged the story down for me. Um, and I wasn't that into it. Um, but overall it's, it's incredible to see these characters again and, and watch these Titans of cinema act with each other. It's, it's really incredible. So it's, it's still a great movie. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with you there on all accounts, really. The thing that I found kind of surprising was I was expecting it. To, I was expecting it to blow me away because I hadn't seen it in several years and I was expecting it to be on par or maybe even better than the original. But having seen the original so recently and in in a proper, like, I saw it in Dolby in the theater. Like, that's incredible. It really, it really, it, I wrote on Letterboxd that this is a movie that is incredibly difficult to judge because it is a continuation and companion piece to literally one of the greatest things to grace the film medium. (laughs) Like it's, it's so hard to judge it. So my initial reaction when I, when I rated it on letterboxd was, yeah, I, I ended up rating it four stars and I, I just didn't feel like it was as compelling and, and strong as the first movie, but Despite that, I recognize that this is better than most movies, um, <laughs> and it is an interesting 
juxtaposition. Like, I think one of the faults of the movie or one of the failings of the movie or one of the things that kind of drags it down a little bit is also one of its greatest strengths in the juxtaposition of young Vito Corleone and uh, Corleone and uh, Michael in quote unquote present day. And that that juxtaposition of the two of them as we see Vito's rise as as he becomes like the dawn as we and while we are also watching Michael his rise his rise further into being this criminal like crime boss guy but also his humanity chipping away it's really really interesting to see those side by side but at the same time i feel like having these two stories running concurrently takes away some of the some of the finesse of both stories themselves like by the time we get to Vito's big moment at the end that kind of sort of defines him but it's the conclusion of his arc in this storyline um i feel like there it feels almost not necessarily like an afterthought but it feels like i don't i I wish we would have seen more. Like, I wish we would have seen more of the build-up toward that. Same with the thing with, uh, like, what happens with Michael. I I really like, on paper, the trajectory of his story and his arcs and everything. But I also feel like the, like the Congress, like, subcommittee thing kind of felt like... I kind of feel like that needed to be a bigger deal. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> I don't know. It just kind of felt like it was by doing double duty with these two storylines. I feel like there's a little bit, there's a little bit of pacing and storytelling issues that kind of come up that were absolutely not present at all in the first movie in terms like the first movie is like tiny said, a near perfect movie. Like I can't, I I can't find like anything wrong with it. Really. It's, it's that good. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Um, yeah. It's, it's funny that you, uh, both of you guys mentioned that, uh, this is, this kind of feels a little bit slower than the first one. When I, uh, I vaguely remember us talking about part one and talking about how there aren't very many action scenes and Mm -hmm. part two has more action scenes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it it is definitely like I had forgotten that this is three hours and twenty minutes before I started it, Me too. and I was kind of dreading looking like I was kind of dreading watching it when I realized that. Um, and I would agree that you uh, you start to feel those three hours and twenty minutes as it goes on. Yeah, um, I don't know exactly what i would cut out from Mm -hmm. this because it it feels very much as a whole um but uh it it is you you definitely start to feel it as it goes on um i i do like that they could have very easily just done the godfather again Mm -hmm. but they didn't in a lot of ways um and what what i find fascinating about this is this came out two years after the first one yeah like i don't know if they had planned i should have done my research i don't know if they had planned on 
making a second one so quickly mm-hmm. uh or if there was a second book that this was kind of going off of i know the first book uh there are parts of this that are in the first book mm-hmm. so they kind of had that ready to go um but i don't know if the other parts they had you know they had had something to base it off of or what mm-hmm. I want to say, I, and I can't say with any certainty, but I feel like um, I feel like most of this movie is comprised of stuff that was in the, is is in the the novel that wasn't included in the first movie, like at least all of Vito's kind of backstory, because I think he yeah. goes into depth with that. Um, yeah, that yeah. that stuff is definitely in the book, but the mm-hmm. stuff with Michael definitely is not. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. Tiny, did you feel the runtime in this movie? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, I, I think seeing the genesis of uh, the Corleone family, mm-hmm. uh, family in italics, if you will, mm-hmm. um, was really uh, was great. And I, I, you know, seeing him come to the United States and uh, Robert De Niro in that role and all that—that that was the young Clemenza and everything. That was great. It was great to yeah. see. And I. I I wouldn't take that out of the movie. It was, it was fantastic. I think, I think what really bogged the movie down was, uh, it was a lot of the, um, Oh, just, just the whole deal with, uh, with Lyman Roth and the, the, um, the Cuba stuff. stuff. I mean, I was just like, I I could not follow it. And and I feel like a lot of the, in the first movie, the conflict with, um, the new drug guy. It's a lot. So, Salazzo, mm-hmm. thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, was a little bit difficult to take all in and get all the details, but you could follow the thread fine. Yeah, you know, the, the main the main themes of it and the main thread of it you can follow and understand. Uh, but the whole Lyman Roth business deal yeah. thing, I was like, I, I don't really Hyman Roth, thank yeah. you. Um, I don't really know what's going on with that, and it wasn't particularly interesting. Um, I, I just couldn't yeah. get on board with it. Any. And he kind of drops out of the movie for a long time and then pops up kind of toward the end. And it just, it it does not feel as cohesive as that first movie was as a whole. Yeah, it's, there, there are so many more new characters that you have to get used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not only that, but figure out like who their alliances are with, who they trust or who they don't trust how they relate to Michael, what, what Michael wants to get out of them. Uh, if, if anyone is telling the truth towards him, Mm -hmm. all of that, there's, there's a whole lot of stuff that you have to get, uh, acclimated with. Plus you have this whole mystery with, uh, that starts out early with whoever tried to assassinate Michael Mm -hmm. and someone betrayed him. But Yeah. Yeah, and that that also it's a weird it's a weird kind of um through line through the movie because tiny like you said that first movie you can follow the threads even if it's kind of convoluted in some parts it is still um by the sum of its parts it is still it, it is an incredible movie and an incredible piece of storytelling with this it's contending with this relatively straightforward 
narrative that's spurned that that's spurned by or spurred by um the assassination attempt early in the movie and that feels that feels like it's kind of separate from everything else in a sense or everything else seems kind of disconnected from each other cuz i don't like off the top of my head, I can't connect that to the Hyman Roth stuff. I can't connect that to the subcommittee stuff or and, and everything. Obviously, I can't... Well, I sort of can't connect that to his marital problems. <laughs> like, I, I just can't... I, I wish that it was more cohesive with all of the threads there. And when when we have so many kind of disparate elements in in that plot line... Like in any other movie, it's, I mean, that's, that's a big hurdle to, to overcome. But when we consider that this is, I don't know how much, I don't know how much of the runtime breaks down this way, but by all accounts, it's 50% of the movie because we also have this entire other flashback thing, which is the more compelling part of the movie for me, um, and also, also, I just got some like it's it's gorgeous. Like I love the way uh, that I I love the way that the movie ha- shifts tone visually. Like it has this almost sepia tone in the in the Vito storyline um, that kind of gets like more and more uh, or or less and less sepia tone and more just regular you know atmosphere visuals and everything. Um, at least that's what it seemed like to me, but, um, but yeah, it just, it kind of seemed a little bit, a little bit jumbled for me, just a tiny bit, not to further, uh, uh, annoy the cinephiles listening. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the, the attempts, uh, Michael Corleone's attempts to legitimize his family's name and his family businesses are what drags down the whole trilogy because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know that's like the least interesting part of, uh, of, of this movie, the mm-hmm. whole Ivan Roth stuff, um, and then in the third movie, that's a large part of the movie mm-hmm. is his attempt to legitimize the Corleone family, and a lot of people don't even like that that version yeah. uh, or that uh, that part. Um, but uh, you know, it, I, I think they they could have amplified or expanded on the whole Frankie Pentangeli. Uh, mm-hmm. That whole conflict could have been really interesting, and uh, you know it, that juxtaposed with the flashbacks to Vito Corleone coming of age and becoming uh, becoming the man that he was, mm-hmm. um, mixed with Frankie Pentangeli, and, and and that whole conflict would have been a really good back and forth. But it just got all bogged down in the the business dealings and stuff like that, that really wasn't that interesting. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, yeah, I, I would totally agree. And, uh, like I said, I, I don't really care too much for the Cuba stuff, Mm. but I will say the new year's Eve scene in Cuba is fantastic. I love the Mm -hmm. way that that plays out. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. I, I wouldn't change anything about that. Yeah. Yeah. Them being there during the revolution, that was like a ballsy choice and really yeah. kind of incredible to watch. Um, so yeah, it, it had that going for it, but, mm-hmm. uh, the, the reason for them being there was just like, okay, this is cool, but why the hell are we here? You know? <laughs> yeah. It just seemed a little bit too expansive in terms of the scope of the movie. Um, considering that the first movie 
from what I remember, I mean, that was, it was New York and Sicily. <laughs> uh, and, uh, there's the scene in California. Oh with yeah, the yeah. Producer. But yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And maybe oh, a brief stint in Nevada as well, but it's, it's not like it just, it feels like this is a little bit more, uh, locale based. Um, it, by my by my estimation and it just kind of seemed like okay that's like it, it, you're throwing so many things at, at the movie at, at the audience that it's kind of not hard to keep up but it's hard to hold your attention um yeah so yeah i'll also say um you know talking i want to talk about the performances a little bit yes um, al pacino it's such a um uh, it's not obviously not a departure from the first movie, but it's so such a different performance than the mm-hmm. first movie. Like I said, he's he's gone full gangster in this one, and he's so dark and detached in this. And mm-hmm. uh, um, I, you know, it's I, I can only imagine in the context of the time of the early to mid seventies when he was practically unknown in the first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, this is only two years later, you know, yeah. um, and I feel like he was. And, uh, this is all speculation, but I feel like he was just acting the fuck out of this movie mm-hmm. as kind of a screw you to people who were like, well, you know, maybe he had one good performance in him or maybe it was a fluke and <laughs> yeah. he was sitting here like, it's not a fluke. I'm, I'm the shit. I'm going to go down mm-hmm. as probably one of the best actors ever. Yeah. Um, so he, he was fantastic. Um, and I also uh, wanted to point out Diane Keaton again. Yeah. Um, it, it really, um, my wife and I ended up watching part three as well. Mm-hmm. Um, she had never seen any of these. And so she was like, well, we watched the first two. Let's watch third one. I was like, all right, let's go ahead. Nice. Um, she's got in, you know, 10 hours between three movies. She's on screen for like an hour. I mean, oh, she yeah. has she does not have a ton of screen time and she no. frankly doesn't have a lot of lines or a lot to do in this whole trilogy, yeah. but she manages to be so relevant. Mm-hmm. and so memorable in these movies she she does a lot with what she's given and yeah. um we'll probably talk about it in spoilers but there is a remarkably powerful scene in this movie um yes and she's just on point in it uh she's phenomenal so it's it's amazing what she mm-hmm. achieved with how little she had as far as screen time uh uh in this whole trilogy uh, and i'm super impressed with her I absolutely agree with that. That one scene in particular, I had forgotten about it. And when when the context is brought out for that scene, I like I kind of audibly gasped a little bit. I was like, oh, oh, yeah, that's oh, wow. okay." (laughs) and we'll talk about that in spoilers. But but yeah, she was incredible, incredible. Yeah, I'll I'll 100 percent agree with all that, but also John Cazale. Um, yeah. I, I had forgotten yeah. to mention, uh, during part one, I had, uh, thought that he was in part one a lot more mm-hmm. than what he was. Um, but he just fully runs with it here. He's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and both him and Al Pacino the next year, dog day afternoon. Yep. So yep. yeah, just Ooh. fantastic seventies. Yeah, for both of them. Absolutely. Um, while we're talking about the performances, I did think this was interesting. I've got the uh, Oscar nominees from this pulled oh, uh, yeah. up here. Um, De Niro wins supporting actor, nice. but the 
other nominees uh, as far as actors, Al Pacino did not win. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Gotso uh, was nominated, Lee Strasberg and Talia Shire. Oh, wow. Uh, which is kind of interesting to me because from what I remember, I don't think Talia Shire is in the movie all that much. No. Or has all that much to do. Right. That's so weird that she... So, wait, was she nominated over Diane Keaton? Yeah. What the... Okay. Okay. That's... <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> That's... Oh, yeah. <laughs> um... Yeah, he, uh, and, uh, sorry, uh, Michael Gatso, I rem- it's not fresh in my mind, but I yeah. remember him being decent in this. He plays Pantangeli. Oh, okay. Pantangeli. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, he was good. Just an interesting bit of nominees. Yeah. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, Brando won for the first one, right? Yeah. Okay. And is is that the one of the only times two actors have won for playing the same character? Uh it's not the only, but yeah, one of okay. the only. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I can't think of the other example. I think I know what it is, but I don't uh, want to say it out loud because I don't want to sound like an idiot. <laughs> the Joker. Joker, yeah. And Anita from West Side Story. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think those are the only times, but wow. uh, those are the ones that come to mind immediately. Mm-hmm. Wow. I also think that this is, it's just interesting to me that, like, a sequel was made of this. Like, mm-hmm. I I don't know how many sequels existed in 1974 to popular movies or unpopular movies. I mean, like... Huh. Uh, sci-fi movies and yeah. horror movies or monster movies obviously but yeah. you know a big prestigious mm-hmm. uh critically and popularly loved movie just didn't really i don't think really got a sequel all that much yeah the only other one i can think of and i haven't seen either of these movies is and let me double check um well well never mind well uh, sort of um the sting in 1973 and the sting 2 i thought the sting 2 was uh, i thought that came out uh quicker but that was uh a decade later um Mm -hmm. hmm. yeah that's interesting um and there's also of course uh (laughs) uh chinatown and the two jakes um (laughs) yeah Oh, I didn't even know about that one. Oh, yeah. The Two Jakes was in 1990, um, and Chinatown was in uh, 74, um, which kind of, uh, to kind of go back to the performances a little bit, it I, I'm now kind of curious to rewatch uh, The Godfather Part 3. In particular, I want to see, and I have it, but I want to see um, uh, the... Uh, Coppola um, re-edit of it, the the Godfather Part Three or the Godfather Coda, the Death of Michael Corleone, um, just to see how it stacks up. But I know that it's not good. And one of the things that I that I'm kind of 
curious about or intrigued about to to kind of revisit it is like i remember you know godfather part three uh, correct me if i'm wrong but it has the iconic al pacino line uh just when i thought they thought i was out they they pull me back in (laughs) and like i have that in my head and sure it's probably not as well maybe it's not as uh, exaggerated, but also I watched Heat a few months ago, and the the whole uh, she's got a great ass scene. Like, <laughs> I'm I'm curious to see to rewatch The Godfather Part Three because I want to know since that's '90s Al Pacino if he goes full Al Pacino because that is in such stark contrast to his performances in both of these installments of The Godfather because he is so measured and so introspective yeah. and he's not bombastic and it's just he's he gives unbelievably good performances in both of these movies so i'm kind of curious to see how that uh goes with 90s pacino yeah i've i've never seen either version of part three so oh, i uh, i want to see that yeah i'm guessing yeah. it's not on ebert's list <laughs> <laughs> So I just watched part three and mm-hmm. um, I, I don't think he's full Pacino, but he's okay. getting there. Gotcha. Um, he, he's got a couple of those, those zingers uh, where he gets real throaty and mm-hmm. shouty. Um, but he's good. And I, I think part three kind of gets a bad rap. I think it's mm-hmm. a, I actually think it's a good movie. I don't think it's bad. Nice. It's just that the first two are, the first one is basically perfect. Mm-hmm. And the second one is really damn good. Yeah. Uh, but this one's just, no, it's good. It's a good mm. movie. It was a, a, you know, kind of an interesting wrap up for everything. It, it, I, yeah. I enjoyed it actually. Um, nice. Sophia Coppola, <laughs> not, not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, Andy Garcia, terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan Keaton, good. Al Pacino, good. Um, so there's, there's obviously things to criticize about and it's not, it's not anywhere near as good as the first two. Uh, but it's, I, I recommend watching it. I, I think nice. it kind of gets a bad rap in my opinion. Nice, nice. Yeah, I I plan on watching it soon. Nice. Yeah, me too, when I can carve out the time. I remember being very interested in... in the the kind of Catholic Church aspect of it, because isn't it some like big thing with him going against the Catholic Church or something? Um, yeah, he's trying trying to work with them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Should we go into spoilers for The Godfather Part Two? Sure. Okay. Um, super quick. I have the uh, trivia pulled up, and oh, I nice. feel like it's relevant relevant given mm-hmm. uh, R.I.P. James Con. Yes. Uh, but James, it says here, James Conn asked that he be paid the same amount of money to play Sonny at the <laughs> end of the film in the flashback as he was for part one. And he got his wish. <laughs> so <laughs> that is that is wild because yeah. um, they had to uh, kill off off screen one of the actors or one of the characters um yeah uh clemenza clemenza yeah yeah because the actor wanted more money i believe yeah yeah and yeah that's that's wild wow Um, i think um uh robert duvall wanted a ridiculous amount of money too yeah Um, yeah he wanted no maybe i'm thinking i I think because he's in this right he's in part two yes i think you're thinking of part three 
I'm thinking of part three. He wanted like $10 million or something. Yeah. I mean, cause it was, I mean, it was, the movie was basically a cash grab part mm-hmm. three. Yeah. Uh, and he was like, yeah, I'm not doing that unless you really shell out yeah. some dough. So he, he's not in it, but yeah. I so feel I was like, confusing them. Yeah. I, I feel like part of that also, or maybe this is apocryphal or maybe it's just something that I'm imagining or projecting, but I think that part of it was that the original concept for part three was going to be about uh uh god is it hagen tom hagen or hagen yeah yeah tom hagen tom hagen taking over taking over the the family and everything um mm. like the transfer of power basically and i think he tried to leverage that to to get a bigger payday for it and then they scrapped that idea and just did whatever they did for three and wrote him out of it um which if that is the case, if it's not something I'm just pulling out of my ass, um, <laughs> uh, that sounds like the much more interesting movie um, than, yeah. than what we got with three from my memory. But yeah. Um, all right. So should we go into spoilers? Yes. You guys ready? Sure. All righty. Well, we're going to go into spoilers for The Godfather Part 2. If for some reason you haven't seen it. And don't want to be spoiled, check the show notes for timestamps, but I'm going to play a clip from the trailer, and then uh, we are going to go into spoilers for The Godfather Part 2. The history of two generations of crime. The drama of absolute power and the men who violate it. The Godfather Part 2. What is your name? Don Vito Corleone and his son Michael both had seen the ones they loved most cut down before their eyes. Both had killed as an act of vengeance. So, spoilers on for Godfather Part 2. Something that I kind of feel like before we get into the actual spoiler aspect, I want to kind of touch on Robert De Niro's performance and how insanely good it is (laughs) like i felt like he was he was absolutely magnificent in the movie um definitely kind of exuding that power that Vito was always going to have but working toward building that up i i thought that he did just an incredible incredible performance um how did you guys feel about de niro um yeah yeah, I mean, it's it's a tall order to go against to live up to uh what Brando did in the first one. Yeah. And uh it is a full embodiment of uh of the later version of Vio Corleone. It's really fantastic. There's a lot of small subtle things that he does that are uh, just really smart that I don't know if any other actor would have been able to do or would have thought to do. Um, you you really get a sense that uh, he would eventually become this well-respected, well-liked, uh, but also feared uh, person. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Tiny, how about you? Oh yeah, it's it's pretty epic performance. Um, I'm really glad that it didn't. Uh, not that I would expect this from De Niro, but I'm really glad that his performance didn't devolve 
into like an impression yeah of of uh um brando sorry yeah as yeah. of brando as Vito corleone like mm-hmm. you know it was he, he made it his own um while still respecting that original performance yeah he he was great uh the subtlety of it i love how he's so um because you know he's so calculated mm-hmm. in the first movie brando as as Vito corleone is so calculated and he doesn't you get the sense from his character that he he only says exactly enough of what he needs to say he doesn't mm-hmm. say he doesn't throw in superfluous words and adjectives and verbs. He's very calculated and every word matters and is uh, carefully chosen. Um, not to say he doesn't say much because mm-hmm. he, he speaks his mind, but he's yeah. just so calculated. Um, it's really impressive. And De Niro continued that. I mean, there's, you know, pivotal scenes where he meets the, the one, the, uh, the kind of like collection, the collection guy mm-hmm. uh, who's, he's racketeering uh without doing much um i don't remember that character's name but he you know he meets him in the in the front of the truck and he's you can just see the gears turning in his head and he's barely saying a word the whole time yeah but he's just like oh i'm this guy's going down he's like i'm i'm going to spin this to my favor and this guy's going down um and he's i i that's just such a great part of the character that both actors were able to basically perfect uh to, to to an amazing degree yeah i really good performance yeah uh i agree yeah um there is a level like one of the things i i really loved about the movie um like i said before is that juxtaposition of michael and Vito and Vito starting like basically creating this empire or creating this uh syndicate like like crime syndicate essentially um really just the start of it but the the level of the movie makes a pointed makes a point to really show the uh family aspect of it he cares for his family and that is juxtaposed with michael being so disconnected and like with with tom telling him like oh i bought i bought you know um Anthony a uh, a little remote control car that he can ride and everything. Uh, so that's what you got him for Christmas and all that. And then he's so disconnected. And his whole arc is about the whole arc is about the lack of humanity or the or the disappearance of humanity in Michael Corleone, as kind of compared to the family aspects and family uh, uh, the start of the beginnings of Vito's morals, his, his, uh, what, there's a word that I'm looking for. <laughs> um, his kind of his, the, the things that he, that he holds deal dear code of ethics, his code of ethics. Yes. Um, and how Michael is not following that code of ethics or it's how he is destroying his humanity so much so that the the culmination being he has his brother murdered um it's it's really interesting and i think that that's what that's what i like most about the movie i just kind of wish that the the disparate elements work together a lot a lot better so yeah yeah i think that one of coppola's smartest decisions uh 
was actually just not including the young veto stuff in part one mm-hmm. because uh it it would have it wouldn't have gelled together as nicely yeah uh even if they even if you would have taken the the exact same scenes here and Robert De Niro had like just copy and pasted them into part one. Yeah. Even if you would have done that, it would, you wouldn't have that juxtaposition of how, uh, how Vito is rising to power while Michael is losing his power or losing his humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, you have that here and it just works so much better. Uh, yeah. Because like the, the the young Vito stuff is in the first book, mm-hmm. so he could have put it in the first one, but he wisely chose not to. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I agree. That had to his his coming of age had to be separate from from the first movie because um, he was really established as a as an icon in that first movie, and uh, to see his genesis in this one made it more powerful. I think in the sequel. Um, that was a good creative choice. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I believe in, I don't know when it was, maybe the, I think early nineties, um, Coppola cut it into a chronological like TV, like film for TV basically. Um, so he had, it's like the complete novel or whatever. Um, it's the Godfather saga. And so it, it's chronological. So it starts with young Vito, then goes to the Godfather and Godfather part two. And while watching this, I thought I kept thinking like, man, it would be really interesting to, to watch that version of it, of these two movies uh, cut together in that way. But the more talking at talking it out and talking about how, how part two, uh, how the two, how the dual narrative of part two uh, reflects each, each protagonist and in, in unique ways, I, I can't I can't see that being uh, a very interesting viewing experience because it's very much like Young Vito and and Michael in Part Two are so t- so inextricably inextricably uh, tied together that it's that I mean that's the movie that's the theme of the movie um, so so yeah are you guys aware of that TV edit um, and and would you be interested in watching it at some point? No, I had no idea that existed. But yeah, I think it'd be an interesting character study, sure. Yeah, no, I, that's that's news to me. Maybe they should put it on Paramount Plus. I was thinking that too. I was hoping that they did. I like looked for it, but no. So that's a that's a bummer. Um, but yeah, maybe they. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they might do something like that for uh, the anniversary for Godfather Part Two in twenty twenty four. So we can only hope. Um. Yeah, so the the kind of end of uh, the end of the movie uh, twofold. There's Vito getting his revenge, which I felt was it really incredible. Like the scene was really incredible, um, but I feel like that just kind of comes up and like w- it's established that he's doing the whole oil, uh, olive oil stuff, the business and everything. But I really wish that that was more at the forefront of of the veto plot, um, because like I remember that I remember that scene from when I saw this when I was in like high school or whatever, 
And I remembered, like, I think throughout the years, I've been thinking like, oh, it's it's all heading toward this. Like the whole entire arc is him just calculating how he can get back to get back to um, to Italy and kill the guy who killed his parents. Um, but it kind of this might, again, be sacrilege, but it kind of feels like the movie is just like, OK, well, we ended we ended the first movie with, you know, the like the assassination uh, juxtaposed with the uh, like the multiple assassinations of the like heads of the five families uh, with the communion scene. So we need to do something with with this. And like this is where we can just not necessarily plug in the the death there, but it just kind of felt like it wasn't led to all that all that well. Although again, it does kind of mirror or or it's juxtaposed well with Michael's final act in the movie, killing Fredo. Um, yeah, I don't know. How did you guys feel about uh, both of those parts of the of the finale of the movie? Yeah, I think I think it felt like um, yeah, Vito killing the the Don who killed his parents was um, uh, like you know. I think I think the movie was telling us that this is we're supposed to feel that this is morally justifiable, mm-hmm. right? This is almost an act of defense or at least justifiable revenge, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and juxtaposing it with Michael having Fredo killed is—I don't know about the exact opposite, but mm-hmm. it's uh, you know I think most people. <laughs> would agree that's pretty fucked up yeah um and uh you know and uh he he has remorse about it later on mm-hmm. but um yeah it's uh it just i think it helps to uh exemplify just how cold michael is and, yeah. and just a, a joyless shell of a person uh that he is uh and really just his coldness is the main thing which comes and some other scenes too but yeah. um yeah it's I, I think i think the placement of that i i think i think it kind of works together maybe, maybe not as um obviously not as iconically as the assassinations in the first movie like you were yeah. talking about but um but it, i think i think it kind of works works on a level yeah 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 um the the whole uh both movies to this point are just all about you don't do anything to go against the family Mm -hmm. or you, the, the family is, uh, the number one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and you get that, um, Vito is killing this guy because of his family and because he's, uh, sticking up for them. And to juxtapose that with like the ultimate sin of Michael having his brother killed uh, is just uh, a really interesting and really fascinating way to pull that all together. Mm-hmm. Like, I think if I remember right in part one, someone says, don't ever do anything against this family or yeah. don't ever yeah. speak up against the family, something like that. And just the way that that comes together here is really great. I actually and, and part of I guess part of why people why I understand people love this one more than the first one. Mm-hmm. I I think that that actually I think in the in the first movie it's I think he actually says that to Fredo. I think it's that's when, what I was trying to remember. Yeah, yeah. If if memory serves, it's when 
it's I think it's when he he's showing like too much respect or fear for I think maybe it's Mo Green um, in Nevada. Yeah. And then he says, like, don't ever don't ever go against the family again or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Don't ever yeah. take sides with anyone against the family ever again. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's like a famous I think I mentioned it when we talked about it last time. That's like mm-hmm. a famous line in my my family. My cousin used to say that all the time. Nice. Like with trivial with trivial shit. Mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, this oh, this doesn't taste very good when we were having dinner. He's like, Hey, don't ever take sides against the family with anyone ever again. <laughs> ever. And we would nice. just fucking die laughing. So yeah, I always remember that line. That's awesome. That's nice. awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um yeah, at least Michael had the respect to wait until his mother was dead. Um, <laughs> yeah, that makes it justifiable. I love yeah. that. Yeah. The mental uh, gymnastics that gangsters do to right. try to justify things. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, let's talk about the Diane Keaton scene. The the re- reveal that she had an abortion and not a miscarriage is. Again, it is it is one of my favorite scenes in 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 the movie for sure. Her performance is just outstanding, and 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 it's kind of an interesting show of power of the power of Michael. In that, from my estimation, my my read of it is that after he like lays into her and and screams at her and says like you're not going to take I do everything in my power you're not going to take this away from me or anything you're not going to take my kids and then later we see how she's having like basically a supervised visitation with the kids and just the the heartbreak of that is is very very palpable and it's i mean diane keaton's performance in there is is incredible um it's it's just a very interesting show of power and the lengths that michael will go to kind of flex his power and utilize his power and not be, you know, he, he wouldn't, he's, he's not someone to be truffled with. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, but yeah, anyway, (laughs) he, it's, it's just, it's very, it's a very powerful scene, but then I kind of feel like, and we, and I'm gonna let you guys talk. I'm sorry, but, um, (laughs) I kind of feel like part of that, is maybe a little undercut by and there's a couple of scenes in the movie that also does the kind of same thing the references to the first movie like for example the kind of button on that scene is that she's standing in the doorway when michael comes in because she's being hurried out because he's on his way and he does not want to see her and then he closes the door in her face and she cries out and everything it's it's like it's kind of like the movie going like, oh, remember that last scene from the first movie? Now it's him that's closing the door. It's like I don't, I don't really get that. But then there's a couple of lines like Vito saying like the original version of his like, uh, um, uh, I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. Um, mm-hmm. Certain things like that doesn't really mix well with me. But uh, how did you feel about Diane Keaton and everything that I just? Uh, word vomited it onto the podcast. It's yeah, it's some of the best, best part, best parts of the uh, the second uh, the second movie. Um, I yeah, I just that that scene is so powerful in the hotel room where she confronts him and mm-hmm. tells him what happened and wants to take the kids away and leave. That's just, I mean, that's and that's before you know 
that's before Pacino went full Pacino. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that performance, his reaction is, uh, incredible Mm -hmm. and, and acted so well. Um, it, it's actually to the point where I, it almost feels like Al Pacino actually hit Diane Keaton. Yeah. Um, it, it almost feels improvised. Like it wasn't in the script or something and she was totally surprised by it. And he like actually, that's what it feels like. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it felt so genuine and his, just the way the anger boils over in him is just, just insane. Yeah. Um, and you know, Diane Keaton stands her ground. She's, mm-hmm. she's so good. Um, but the, the equally, maybe almost, almost equally as good a scene as the one you were talking about where he's, she's v- visiting with her kids with mm-hmm. uh, Connie kind of supervising it basically. Yeah. Um, and he shows up and, God, just the absolute coldness yeah. of him closing. And it's not like he just goes over and closes the door. He del- is deliberately making eye contact with her the mm-hmm. whole time. And he closes that door so slowly and mm-hmm. doesn't say a word to her. His expression doesn't change. It is the coldest, coldest thing I've ever seen. I mean, it's yeah. so, such a brutal thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um I, it, that 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 was amazing to me. Um, those two scenes together, I just some of the best in the movie, and uh, just really chilling. Yeah, um, yeah, re- really incredible. Yeah, what what did you think, Ben? Yeah, uh, cosine, hundred percent. Nice. Um, yeah, I I don't know what more I can add, but uh, the the movie just wouldn't work as well without. Uh, without Diane Keaton's performance and just even those small little bits, uh, just really fantastic. And she really builds off of what little we get of her in part one, just like John Cazale. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, how'd you guys feel about the murder of Fredo and the, in the end scene, really the, the final scene that flashback to, uh, the family dinner and then the cut to, you know, Michael alone and kind of contemplating things. Like, how did you feel about how that book ended or how that capped off this uh, continuation of, of the story of Michael Corleone? It, um, yeah, I, I really liked the, uh, the imagery of Fredo's Fredo's death, um, his murder, if you will, uh, you know, the, the, obviously the audio is real, really poignant. And, um, it's, it's a very isolationist kind of scene. Um, Michael's kind of on his own and it's, the the imagery is just pretty powerful from Mm -hmm. that scene. Um, but it's not particularly memorable in any other way. Um, uh, for example, it's not as memorable as the, uh, the hospital scene in the part in part one, yeah. you know, the, 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 the visual tension of that scene, it's not quite as incredible as that, but I don't think it's supposed to be either. No. Um, and then the, uh, the, uh, gosh, what was the other part? You talked about the ending, the kind of final scene with, with him just sort of con- sitting in a chair by himself. I think it yeah. just solidifies the loneliness that he's created for himself. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not, I don't know if I would say tragic because it's almost like, you know, your, your actions have brought you to this and mm-hmm. this is really what he kind of deserves. Yeah. Um, but it's a little, it's, it's, it's harrowing to watch it. Yeah. As, as Gen Z would say, he fucked around and found out. Um, 
Ben, how did you feel about the ending? Yeah, uh, just brilliantly directed, uh, brilliantly plotted. Um, like, you know, from the aforementioned Cuba scene, you know that uh, Fredo is screwed, mm-hmm. uh, but you don't really know how it's going to happen. And uh, like to like like tiny said the isolation of michael like he doesn't even have the guts to kill him himself yeah um and you you know that fredo is probably gonna die but um the way that michael kind of squirrels his way out of doing it uh or being there uh is just really brilliant and the to speak about the flashback i really liked it at the time and I am now that I'm kind of thinking about it, I am kind of wondering if you guys think that maybe it's a little unnecessary. Like you, you definitely get like the, the whole thesis statement of the movie is how Michael has drifted so far apart from where he was at the beginning of part one. Yeah. And I, I wonder if the flashback is kind of emphasizing that a little too much. What do you guys think? I, sorry, Tanya, I was just going to say, I, I would say yes. It's also a little bit, it's it's a little bit too, yeah, It's I, I would say it's a little too emphasized, especially with the kind of, I mean, the line that, that Sonny says saying like, I don't understand, like who would, who would go and, you know, kill people for other people or something or like. Uh, like risk your life for, for people you don't even know and everything. It's all about family and all that. And then, um, and then it just kind of feels like it feels like it's, it's a little too on the nose and a little too pointed to show the growth of Michael. I don't know. Tiny, what, what about you? That's exactly what I was going to say. It's too on the nose. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 yeah, it's a little hammy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't hate it or anything. It's not the worst. Right. Yeah. creative decision but yeah it was just it was too on the nose yeah i mean i love seeing all of them together but mm. yeah right yeah and i think that it, it what sells it for me and makes it less of an an obstruction to the movie is that that kind of button on it that 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 kind of transition to the modern day where he's sitting there alone and he's lost everything um I think that that's what kind of makes it work a little bit more for me, but it is it is very kind of uh, direct and and a little obvious. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, do we have anything else to say about the Godfather Part Two? No, I I think I'm good. Nice. Yeah, I think that covers it. Sweet. All right. Yeah. Well, that's our review of the Godfather Part Two. Um, since it was my pick, uh, let's go with Ben and then Tiny. Uh, ben, what would you uh, give it a thumbs up or thumbs down? And would you would it would you put it on your great movies list? Uh, yeah, I would say thumbs up. I think there's more positives than negatives with this. Um, again, I don't subscribe to the notion that this is better than part two. Mm-hmm. Um, I would or the better than part one. Sorry, um, I would kind of be interested to talk to someone that does think that because I don't think I know anyone personally that does. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I would put it on my great movies list. I think 
I I don't know how often I'll go back to rewatching this because mm-hmm. again the the runtime is just yeah a lot. Um, but uh, I mean it's 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 still great. It's um, got plenty of worthwhile aspects. So yeah, on my great movies list. Nice, nice, tiny. How about you? Um, yeah, I gave it uh, four stars, and I definitely a thumbs up for me. Um, it is a really good movie. It's 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 pretty great. Um, I would not. I'm actually not going to put it on uh, a great movies list for me. Interesting. And and I think the reason is because the first one's already there, mm-hmm. um, and that movie's basically perfect. Like like we've been saying, um, and there's there's a lot to draw from in the gangster organized crime genre you know yeah. you have to have the godfather on that list mm-hmm. um but i i don't know that we need a second entry from that franchise on that list um so in that in that kind of thread uh i think what i would pick to replace it is um i know it's not on this list it's not on ebert's list um i wanted to stick with kind of a gangster organized crime movie and this one's kind of underrated it is uh, Running Scared from 2006. Oh, with, wow. Uh, kind of an odd poll, I know. Um, Paul Walker and mm-hmm. uh, Vera Farmiga, um, Chaz Palminteri. Um, that movie, in my opinion, is very underrated, at least mm-hmm. for most of the people. Most people, I think, haven't even seen it, but it's got a, it's got a 7.3 rating on IMDb, but wow. that's, that's a, pretty, um, a pretty unique and kind of a different, uh, different take on organized crime. And, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, that movie's a lot better than I ever would have thought. I remember seeing, yeah. Oh, it's a Paul, Paul Walker movie. I was like, I, it's probably not going to be very good. And then I saw it and I was like, Holy shit, this is a damn good movie. So I, wow. if you haven't seen running scared, I highly recommend it. It's, it's yeah. probably going to be a lot better than you think it is. That. Yeah. Uh, I, I have not seen that running scared, but I've seen the 1986 running scared with Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines, <laughs> which is which is really good, uh, believe it or not. Nice. I've only seen pieces of that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember Tiny. I remember you uh, recommending running scared to me. We may have watched it at work when we worked nights together. But Possibly, yeah. Oh man, yeah, that movie is that movie's incredible. I honestly, when you said when you were kind of. Uh, uh, doing your preamble with your pick, I honestly thought I was I was so confident that you were going to say a Bronx Tale, um, mm. with Chaz Palminteri and directed by De Niro, um, which is yeah. a movie that I should revisit at some point because I haven't seen it in a very long time, but I remember enjoying it. Also, a great movie, yeah, 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 um, yeah. yeah so for me, um, I would give it a thumbs up, and I would put it on my great movies list because. <laughs> As as many kind of critiques and issues as I had with the structure of it, or at least in the sense of the cohesion of of both narratives, really, um, I still like it is still an incredible movie. <laughs> like like I said, it's to judge it against The Godfather is is tough because The Godfather is is it, it absolutely insanely good, but The Godfather Part Two is good and better than a lot of other movies so yeah i would do yes uh thumbs up and on my list so cool. yeah all right so are we ready for movie three 
to kind of wrap up with our third review. Yep. Yep. All right. Tiny, this was your pick. It's a uh, uh, dark city. Do you want to go ahead and uh, intro it for us and let us know why you picked it? Yes. Uh, the uh, plot summary, courtesy of IMDb, is a man struggles with memories of his past, which include a wife he cannot remember and a nightmarish world no one else ever seems to wake up from. Um, this came out in uh, 1998. I wanted to pick a uh, kind of a newer, uh, more recent movie that's on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said earlier, uh, Ebert has a lot of older movies on the list, which is great. Yeah. Uh, but we've, we've been picking a lot of the older ones lately, and so I wanted to kind of pick something newer. I saw this movie years and years and years ago. Uh, it wasn't when it came out, but I was mm-hmm. maybe a teenager in my late teens or early 20s last time I saw this, and I didn't follow it that well. I may have like fallen asleep during it or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't really remember it that well. Uh, so I kind of wanted to revisit it again um, and and see how, see how good it is. It's got a 7.6 rating on IMDb, which is pretty good. Um, so I was just curious to see how I would react to it again. Yeah. Nice. And uh, Ben, what's your history with Dark City and how did you feel about it on this uh, on this viewing? I had no history of it. Uh, I had never even really heard of it uh, Mm. other than just browsing through the Ebert list. Um, And I thought that this was pretty interesting. Um, I think uh, there are some really interesting sci-fi elements to it, some really interesting noir elements. Um, Noir is kind of a genre that I uh inherently like more Mm -hmm. often than not it's not a genre that i find myself going to very often uh but it's still one that i i really really like a lot um so i i liked the kind of melding of those two uh genres together pretty well um but there there are still some issues with it that i have Mm -hmm. that we'll get into but uh still some really interesting concepts and a really uh, interesting sci-fi, uh, story. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I saw, I saw dark city years and years and years ago. Um, in particular, I believe tiny, I think when we were like teenagers, um, I think that you, maybe you had recommended to me, or maybe I saw it on IMDb and everyone was saying like, Oh, you know, everyone loves the matrix, but check out dark city. Um, and I remember, uh, like, I thought it was fine when I saw it as a teenager. I, well, I don't really, I didn't, didn't really commit much of it to memory and seeing it this time, it felt, it felt a little bit, it felt like a a movie that I should enjoy. Like it should be up my alley. It's sci-fi. It's noir. It has, a pretty good cast, a very intriguing concept. Um, the the design of it is really cool, um, but I just I, I was kind of turned off by it a little bit, and it was just kind of um, it kind of was a muddled muddled sci fi noir movie for me. And I know that I, like I think I read that uh, Alex Proyas had. Uh, lost like a an a a fight with the studio about putting like an, a voiceover narration in it, 
and that was to its detriment and everything. And it just, it really felt to me kind of like a sort it kind of felt like a uh <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna tr i'm gonna uh i'm gonna use um a common meme but it was like um it was like oh can can uh i, I want to watch i want to watch blade runner we have blade runner at home and it's dark city <laughs> um <laughs> same with the matrix but it just it just didn't really it didn't really do much for me. Um yeah. Uh it was cool seeing uh Rufus Sewell or Sewell um in it. I thought that was cool. And William Hurt, uh, who recently passed, is is solid as as the kind of noirish guy, but uh honestly I just I just I couldn't really connect with it. I felt like it was is a little not not really as detailed as I would have liked it to be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I also think as far as performances, Jennifer Connelly had very little to do. Yeah. Um, she's just so reactionary to everything. She just didn't have much to work with, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I think um, for me, I do like this movie. I'm, I'm positive on it. Um, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not great, but it's, um, I, I give it a ton of points for originality. Mm -hmm. Um, I've, I've never seen a, a movie that follows this thread and has a, a, a storyline like this. Um, and I also give it a lot of points for the, for the visuals. Mm -hmm. Um, it feel it's, it's a very practical movie. Um, CGI was, pretty well established by this point and you know was was being used pretty regularly in movies mm -hmm. and there's not a lot of it in this it's it's pretty pretty practical and uh you know very set heavy and everything it's not it's not uh it's not over reliant on cgi um and so i give it a lot of credit for that and and i think it's uh i, I think it deserves credit for that um you know i and i think it, it is interesting to, to see Rufus Sewell in there uh, to, to mm -hmm. go back to their performances. I think Alex Proyas wanted someone who was pretty unknown because, you mm -hmm. know, the, the character has, doesn't really know who he is that well, doesn't know who yeah. anyone is. He's kind of lost and he wanted, you know, he didn't want some big movie star in that role. And I thought that was a good choice, you know, uh, and Rufus Sewell does well. Um, but yeah, mostly, mostly just the originality and the visuals, I think are, are pretty top notch in this movie. Um, but there's a lot of other stuff that doesn't, doesn't work all that well. Um, I, I think for me, some of the, um, some of the like terminology is a little over the top and some of the uh, um, Kiefer Sutherland is, is kind of, kind of flirting with the overtopness just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's not, he's not that bad, but he's, mm -hmm. um, he's, he's getting close. I think it's mostly with his, his delivery of the word tuning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's just, it's like, dude, what do you turn British just to say that word? Yeah. Like I, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of funny, but um, yeah, was, and just some of the other, yeah. some of the other stuff is just a little hammy. Yeah. Kiefer Sutherland was making some choices. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's, he ran it's with always he ran with those choices. Yeah. It's always funny to me uh to see him in his like pre Jack Bauer roles. Yeah. And this is this is almost the exact opposite of Jack yeah. Bauer. Although I will say there is yeah. at least one scene I think where I think he says I think he actually says the lines like we're running out of time or something. And it's like <laughs> it's like the proto Jack Bauer. I'm like, whoa, okay. Yeah. 
Let, let's get the <laughs> clock rolling. Cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, Ben, how did you feel about Dark City? Did we talk about it? Did, did you give your take? Yeah, just kind of overall. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I, I really like the uh, the ideas at play here, especially like the way that memories are being used. Um, I, I think that's a really, uh, and especially the way that memories uh, are used as a way to explore what makes humans human. Mm-hmm. I think that is really interesting. I wish it would have expanded on that a little bit more or spent a little bit more time with it. Mm-hmm excuse me, at least up until the end. Um, but uh, I think uh, it's really interesting, yeah. Um, I I think I texted you guys this after I had watched it, but the the meme of the, uh, uh, the angry guy in the crowd or whatever who's mm. uh, staring at the camera and he's, uh, and I had basically said it was like, all the people that worked on dark city city after watching <laughs> the matrix a year later, because it's crazy yeah. how many similarities there are between this and the matrix. Maybe it's because I've seen the matrix so many times, mm-hmm. but just the, the way that this movie plays with the idea of control and breaking free of this oppressive society mm-hmm. and the green color palette and, uh, just all of that is, is, uh, and the way that, that people are kind of interchangeable, uh, it's, it's funny. And I think, uh, and I, uh, read the Ebert essay and I think he said that the sets that were used in this were used on the matrix or some yeah. of them. I was just so, going to say, yeah. yeah. Uh, the trivia says a number of pieces of the set, including those used for the rooftop chase, were sold to the production of the Matrix at the end of shooting. Yeah, yeah. I'll say I think the Wachowskis used it to uh, better effect. I yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah, and we can go into spoilers fairly quickly, but I do want to say that at the end of the day, I, I, like I said, Dark City seems like the type of movie that I would be kind of primed for. But it also just feels like it's missing something. And I should I'm I'm gonna say something that is going to be controversial. Um, but I'm not a big fan of the crow, honestly. Um mm. it's not it wasn't like a big part of my life growing up, and it wasn't something that I really connected with when I rewatched it. I I visually I think it's interesting and everything, but I'm just not a big fan of the crow. And so I don't have that like Alex Proyas kind of admiration or anything. And at the end of the day, I kind of feel like Dark City is Dark City is in some respects total recall without Paul Verhoeven. It's it's Blade Runner without um without Ridley Scott. It's the Matrix without the Wachowskis, and it suffers for that because I don't think it 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 fully explores the concepts that it's playing with um, in a way that those other filmmakers would have um, and did in their own respective work. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a really yeah. good, really good point. I hadn't thought of, I don't, I don't know that Alex Proyas was the best shepherd for mm-hmm. this story, if you will. Yeah. I, that's a good point. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I uh, I didn't really know anything about Alex Proyas uh, mm. before watching this. I learned later that he also directed I Am Legend. Um, yeah. I, Matt, to speak to your, uh, what you had said, I've never seen The Crow, so oh, I can't really speak to um, how this works with or without mm. that. But um, one of you, I forget who, uh, had mentioned the voiceover in the beginning. I, yeah. uh, I didn't totally mind that, but I have come to learn that it's kind of a source of contention and mm-hmm. people say that it almost like ruins the movie. I don't know about that. I think from what I remember, they just have the opening narration at the beginning of the movie. And then there isn't really anything after that. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong though. That's you're correct. But I think the, the point of contention comes at the fact that the, the opening narration just straight up spoils a plot element of it. Like Mm. it spoils the fact that, sorry for spoilers but um uh Kiefer Sutherland is working with the aliens and that and that they are aliens and it kind of lays things out a little bit too much and it kind of for me it kind of deflates any of the like mystery or anything uh for me so yeah okay yeah I feel like the movie really doesn't need it I I think it's and it is it it gives away too much yeah Mm mm-hmm yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Do we want to talk specifics and spoilers? Do we have anything to talk in spoilers? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and spoil Dark City. I'm going to play a clip from the trailer. And uh, when we come back, we're going to be spoiling Dark City from And the trailer is just music. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, spoilers for Dark City. Um, we didn't really talk about the the titular darkness of the city. Um, I liked that as a as a kind of plot thread where they kind of realize like, oh yeah, shit's not right. So, it, do you remember being in daytime? I kind of like that as a as a concept. But again, the movie doesn't really explore um, its concepts quite enough for my liking so how'd you guys think what did you guys think of uh dark city in spoilers yeah i feel like the um um the idea of you know the the mystery of darkness and the whole um whatever the beach was called i can't remember um Uh, was yeah it was uh those were those were fascinating and i think mm. it's interesting that the uh uh, the aliens kind of put those in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was good. Um, I enjoyed that. And I also, um, the aesthetics of the aliens themselves, um, what did he call them? The visitors? I can't remember. Yeah. He, he yeah, had a moniker for him, so. but, um, anyways, uh, it was a little, their aesthetic was just a little, um, plain, just not super imaginative like yeah. it's just it's it's so easy to just kind of um 
kind of like throw a throw a formal hat on a villain and call it a day, you know, and give him a long coat and you're good to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. just kind of it's it seems a little lazy maybe. Yeah. Ben, what did you think? Um yeah, I uh I I liked the look of the visitors uh and the way especially the set where they have their like their lair or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um and to to speak on the um the beach or the island or whatever. I I can't remember what it's called, but um I I liked the final scene between Rufus Sewell and Jennifer Connelly. I liked the kind of emotionality uh behind that. Um that was that was a good way to end the movie to mm-hmm. to show that they could still end up together even though they are essentially strangers. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's all well and good, but I just kind of feel like it, for me, it didn't really, uh, it just, it it just didn't connect with me on Mm -hmm. like the the most enjoyable part of it for me or the most, the most, the closest I came to being connected to it on a story level and everything was the kind of reveal that they're in space and the kind of like the way that they dispatch with some of the guys like the way like William Hurt goes out is is really interesting I think doesn't he fly out into space um I think someone flies out into space and I thought that was really cool but yeah it's just it I I don't know maybe I have a little bit of like matrix bias because (laughs) it just I mean that's clearly the superior movie of the two and I just I can't really get past uh uh just i i can't really find a road into dark city for me that's not that wasn't an intentional pun i'm actually pretty proud of it honestly <laughs> so uh, do you remember how to get to dark city <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice nice um yeah that's fair uh, i i agree with that um i also one kind of contention i had with the movie was um uh i think the onus for the experiment if you want to call it that mm-hmm. was just a li- still a little too unclear like i, I yeah. don't i i think it's an interesting concept that they were using memories and swapping them around to see what makes a human tick and how they work but yeah. i just don't know i don't know to what end like i, I understand yeah. that they're they're dying and i don't do they want to occupy the human race and take them over do they want to emulate them i i don't yeah. and, and i i understand there it's nothing there's nothing wrong with leaving some mystery but right it it just seems like a whole shit ton of work for something and un, an unclear goal i guess yeah um i i don't know yeah. it was just weird yeah i i didn't uh i, I didn't totally connect how doing this whole memory swap experiment mm-hmm. thing connected to saving their race. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't yeah. understand w- where those two plot points meet, you know? Yeah. Um, right. Maybe it's just because I wasn't paying attention close enough, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it, I, I feel like that could have been expanded upon been expanded upon a little bit more yeah or even made to be the focus of the movie i mean 
if they're going to kind of spoil that in the opening narration, which I understand is like after the fact, that's that was something in post-production, I'm sure. But if it's if it's going to make that be the kind of thesis statement of the movie that they're like they're doing whatever for whatever means to save their whatever. I wish that it had been explored a lot more and been a lot less vague because then I could find some kind of narrative through line with it where I can have some kind of emotional connection to it, but it wasn't there and I, I wasn't there for it. I just, it just, it didn't work for me. So, yeah. I also didn't totally understand until the end. And again, maybe this is just because I wasn't paying attention close enough, but I didn't understand were they doing this for the entire human race and doing this for, uh, everyone every night or every so often or whatever. Uh, but it's, it's obviously it's revealed later that it's just a collection of, a sample of some of them. Yeah. So, yeah, I was I was kind of uh, confused most of the time about exactly how many of these people uh, Kiefer Sutherland was running around and swapping memories out with. Yeah. Yep. Right. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yep. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts on Dark City? I think no. I'm good. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Um, we'll go around the horn again. Uh, Tiny, since this was your pick, we'll save you for last. Um, I can let, uh, Ben, let's, uh, let's start with you. What did you, uh, what, oh my God, thumbs up or thumbs down. And would you put it on your great movies list? Um, thumbs up. I think, I think, uh, like I said, I like these two genres and how they're melded together here. Um, I like the aesthetics of it. Uh, uh, I just, like I said, I, I don't know if the ideas were executed uh, to my liking. Um, I don't think I would put it on my great movies list. Uh, and obviously, The Matrix is right there to yeah. to be put on my great movies list and it will be but that's not what i'm gonna pick oh nice uh, i'm actually gonna go in a totally different direction because uh full disclosure this was gonna be the movie that i was gonna pick for next time but then i looked and it is not on the list and i oh, wow. sorry if i'm going on a bit of a rant here but <laughs> i've got a little bone to pick with you mr ebert mm-hmm. um the movie would be It Happened One Night from 1934, which is ah. considered to be not only one of the greatest romantic comedies ever made, but one of just the greatest movies ever made. And I would agree yeah. with it. It's amazing. And it's not on the list. And I don't understand wow. why. Huh. Um, so even though the the two movies have absolutely nothing to do with each <laughs> other, uh, it happened one night would be my pick to replace Dark City. Uh, nice. And forewarning, uh, The Matrix will eventually make it onto my great mm-hmm. movies list. I just don't know when yet. Nice. And I will say, I mean, Devil's Advocate, they do have one thing in common. They both apparently have things to do with night. So there we go. <laughs> um, 
nice. um yeah that's a really good that's a, i've never seen it happen one night and i'm i'm very surprised that it's not on the list either because i would have loved to have seen, well i mean i can still watch it but um uh but yeah uh yeah that that's definitely on my radar for a movie to watch uh with or without ebert's approval um <laughs> For my for my rating, I would give this honestly a thumbs down, um, just because I I'm someone who loves science fiction, and I love when science fiction introduces a concept and explores it in a way that stokes my fire and makes me think about the themes that it's exploring, the ideas that it's exploring. I felt like Dark City was a little too empty for me, and it just it it just felt. It was it was visually interesting, but empty for me in in a lot of other uh, ways that bear a more uh, a more heavy criteria for for my enjoyment of movies. So uh, definitely a thumbs down, and would not be on my uh, favorite uh, my great movies list. But I'll I'll go the obvious route and put The Matrix on there because I think the Wachowskis did an incredible job with what they like what they were going for with with the matrix and it, it it yeah it's it's incredible and i'm 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 curious to read ebert's review of the matrix and try to figure out why he would put dark uh, excuse me dark city on the list over the matrix because the matrix isn't on the list so yeah so uh yeah that's that's uh that's mine tiny round us out with your uh with your thumbs up or thumbs down and would it be on your list yeah it's well said matt um i that's a good thank yeah, you good, well said i like that um yeah i i'm kind of like ben i'm gonna give it a reluctant thumbs up nice <laughs> um because because i i do again i give it a lot of points for originality mm-hmm. and vis- visuals I, I think it's worth a watch i would i don't think it's a great movie but i think it's worth a watch for sci-fi fans nice. um I gave it three stars, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm definitely positive on it. I I would not put it on my great movies list. Um, I think again the obvious choice is The Matrix, but mm-hmm. um, I was I was kind of thinking about what to replace it with, and I was thinking in terms of um, I know they don't have to relate to each other, but I was thinking in terms of uh, you know uh, memory loss and uh, memory issues, mm-hmm. and so I think I would replace it with. Uh, Christopher Nolan's movie from 2000, uh, Memento, nice. starring Guy Pierce. Nice. Yeah. I like it. That's on Matt's great movies list. Yes, it is. Oh, yeah. I did, did I did I add it to uh, replace one movie? Yeah, I want to nice. say uh, maybe Mulholland Drive, maybe. I, I think you're right. Yep. I'll have to oh. consult my letterbox list. <laughs> nice. That's nice. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nice. yeah, definitely go back and check that one out. Um, again, I'll put a link in the show notes to, to, uh, Ben's letterbox list there. Um, um yeah. fun, fun fact real quick. Uh, after I had read the Ebert essay about this, uh, this was his number one movie of 1998. Ooh. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, sure. I, I forget now what the <laughs> other contenders were, but, mm-hmm. um, Yeah. Wow, that's that's something. That's really interesting. Huh. Well, more power to them. Uh, yeah. To each their own. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Well, those are our reviews. And uh, before we before we close out the episode, we're going to be picking the uh, selections for the next um, 
for the next Ebert's Great Movies List uh, episode, which will be part 15. Um, and I'm trying to remember how we do this in chronological order from release date, I guess. So Ben, since you had the earliest in this one, uh, why don't you hit us with your, uh, pick for part 15? All right. So, um, my pick is, uh, again, it would have been, it happened one night, but it's not, Mm -hmm. uh, you guys, if you want to do extra credit, you can watch that on your own and we can discuss next time but mm-hmm. um my actual pick is actually one that we discussed i believe on patreon last time we did one of these oh. uh which is from 1931 uh <laughs> m from fritz lang nice okay uh, plot description mm-hmm. okay uh Give me one sec to pull it up on IMDb because the one on the Just Watch website is long. Oh, yeah. Um, Um, And I believe... I can tell you it is streaming on HBO Max Mm -hmm. and Canopy and Criterion Channel and a couple other places that I have never heard of. (laughs) Um, Nice. Plot description. When the police in a German city are unable to catch a child murderer, other criminals join in the manhunt. So just a rollicking good family fun (laughs) time. (laughs) Nice. That's exciting because I've I've never seen I don't think I've ever seen a Fritz Lang movie. So uh yeah. 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 Nice. Nice. Um, so going in chronological order, mine is next because I had the Godfather Part Two. Um, I was originally going to do a specific movie to kind of round out a trilogy of movies, if you will, mm. since The Godfather Part 3 isn't on it. I was going to go with another uh, Coppola movie, but uh, last minute changed it up to uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia from 1999. Uh, plot summary, an epic mosaic of interrelated characters in search of love, forgiveness, and meaning in the San Fernando Valley. And uh, Magnolia is available to stream on Canopy and Paramount Plus. It's also available to rent pretty much anywhere um, you rent movies. And yeah, I'm excited about this because I recently bought it on Vudu. Um, and also, I have not seen this movie since I was maybe 17. So I'm curious to see how uh, an adult brain uh <laughs> with an asterisk um <laughs> uh feels about it so so yeah so magnolia Excellent. yeah I, nice. true story i have been toying around with picking that one uh not necessarily this time but very soon so nice. thank you for taking that off my plate nice uh, it, it's one of the few pta movies that i've never seen so oh I'm that's excited. awesome wow sweet nice awesome uh, so Tiny, how about you round us out with your pick for next time? Yes. Uh, so my pick is um, 1985's The Color Purple. I've never seen oh, it before. Okay. So I've always wanted to see it. The IMDb plot description says, A black Southern woman struggles to find her identity after suffering abuse from her father and others over four decades. Um, yeah, I've, I've never seen it. Always wanted to see it. Um, I know it's a pretty legendary movie directed mm-hmm. by Spielberg starring, uh, Oprah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've just always wanted to see it. And, uh, uh, that's, that's pretty much my only reason for picking it. It's, um, nice. streaming on HBO max. Sweet. 
Nice. I've also never seen it, and we haven't talked about Spielberg yet on here. Oh, my God. We haven't talked about Spielberg Spielberg at all, have we? That's pretty wild. That's that's insane. Uh, Yeah. I watched The Color Purple maybe five years ago, so I'm very interested to see it again because... Yeah, I, I, you know, I thought it was okay. Um, but yeah, I'm excited for that. We'll probably do that next month um, at some point. But but yeah, that's that, those are our picks. Uh, M, Magnolia, and The Color Purple. So look forward to that. Um, do we have any parting thoughts before we head out? Oh, oh, I should say, Ben, do you have anything to plug for your website, for themoviestate.com? Um or anything anything going on uh yeah sure so um by the time this episode will have come out i will have uh posted a interview with a uh comics uh writer and artist her name's emily mcgovern she uh wrote and drew this comic that i actually just reviewed recently called uh 12 dread which is really fantastic and really funny um uh, and so I'm excited. I haven't, as of this recording, I haven't talked with her yet, but I'm excited to get to do that. And, uh, you guys will be able to read that soon. Other than that, um, I'm hoping to get some kind of review out there for the, uh, the league of their own uh, reboot oh, thing yeah. on Amazon prime, which mm-hmm. is coming out on the 12th. Um, mm. Hopefully I'll have something out uh, by the time it starts. So mm-hmm. um, if not, don't blame me. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, great work as always. Also, um, you were a guest on. So so if you guys missed Ben's uh, insight in our Nope review, um, Ben, you were a guest on our friend Brent's podcast, Awake in the Dark, to talk Nope. Um, I listened to that and really enjoyed it. So I was glad to be able to hear your thoughts on the movie since you can make it for the recording. Yeah, that was really fun. I'm glad yeah. it worked out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so link to all that is in the show notes and everything. Uh, what I've been up to is I wrote, uh, oh, uh, here in a couple of weeks or next week, by the time you're listening to this, I'll have a review that is going to be kind of scathing of uh, of summering. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, just Patreon has a bunch of stuff. I'm going to be resuming the severance uh, episode reviews and everything. And then I'm going to... Uh, or I also have Stephen King stuff on there. So check that out, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. That is it for episode 378. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining me. And, uh, and I look forward to chatting with you guys again. Um, yeah, so that'll do it for this episode. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you in the next one. And now, enjoy this short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. For the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, such as early access to episodes, TV book and movie reviews and reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and Patreon poopery episodes, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. Because it's kind of the same with... I I would assume that it's the same with like television shows that have long running storylines and stuff like like Vince Gilligan 
knows Mm -hmm. what is going to happen in Breaking Bad. So he's going to have like clue in the directors or he's going to have them perform in a certain way. Right. Um, (laughs) There's also How I Met Your Mother. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) We can't talk about that show. No, no. Not until we get the commentary track for that. Um, are there, uh, no are there movies i was thinking about this the other day mm-hmm. are there movies and are there books where you could figure out the ending people often you know people are always like oh, i figured out the ending and it's like well yeah you took a guess and you were correct yeah but is are are there i, I guess like any specific examples for me like yeah, that you know of, mm. like books where if you did the detective work, mm-hmm. if you made a board, you could figure <laughs> out who the killer was. Yeah, I mean, there definitely are definitely movies and books that I have I have had that experience where I'm like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what's going to happen. Like, I know, like, I'm noticing the beats of it and I know who's going to do this and all that. And I can't think of any particular examples because... I always do find that a, a little bit obnoxious when people are like, oh, it was predictable. Like, okay, mm-hmm. you'd say it was predictable. Like, be more specific, like, with your criticism of it. Yeah, right. But then on the other hand, when I find a movie or story in whatever medium predictable, I often find it forgettable. <laughs> and, like, I can't I can't point to a specific thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, how about you? This podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at ObsessiveViewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.